missing the action? Sean! Give me an in-your-face violent prisoner any day of the week because you know what you're dealing with and you, you're like, yeah, they are what they are. Um, he'd split this guy's head open and start eating his brain. Oh. He has categorically said to psychiatrists, if you release me, I will kill again. People think that slashing your neck's quite easy. You need to put quite a bit of force into This sounds gruesome, doesn't it? I've seen people with like flaps of skin oh. hanging off the face. They said, if he kills himself, you're gonna lose your job. Any loss of life is horrendous, but it was tragic. These girls were young in age, young in service, and I think it was the fact that they were both women. Armed police, snipers on the roofs. There's this creature sat in front of me who knows the truth, who's full-blown psychopath, who knows the truth that he's not telling us. I literally want to hold a knife to your throat and, and get you to tell me where that child's body is and tell us what you really did. He had raped, tortured, murdered, dismembered, disposed of this young child. The inside on the passenger window that she was in were little handprints. Mm. Which tells me she was conscious and she was trying to get out. There we go. Part two. People said Jamie Morgan Kane could tell a story and my goodness, Holly is <laughs> up there. She's probably the female equivalent of Jamie Morgan's storytelling ability. If you've not seen Jamie's videos, he's the most viral guest with 10 million views presently and it just keeps going up and up. If you've seen part one with Holly, you know what I'm talking about. This is the Prison Governor series, our first ever Prison Governor. And we only got into year eight where Holly is not yet a governor. She's come across Purple Aki. I thought I knew everything about prison, having interviewed hundreds of people who've been in prison, and Holly just took it to the next level. I mean, even if you just have time to watch the trailer from part one, you'll see what I'm talking about. There's, I learned so much from speaking to Holly. It is dark, it is harrowing, it is graphic content. Holly does not mince words. You are gonna go on a hard-hitting journey today, part two of the hard-hitting journey, as we continue into and we're gonna watch our language. We're gonna call certain people, uh, people who are attracted to kids, instead of saying the P word. And um, we're gonna to go to a prison that specialized in those offenders in the beginning of this. And we're also gonna to go to a Manchester prison where, because there's gonna be a lot about Dale Cregan in this and a lot about the other killer. Mark Bridger. Mark Bridger, there's gonna be a lot about them. And I imagine we're gonna to have to end it before Holly gets to the fin end of her story. So there's gonna be many more parts. <laughs> Which we're looking forward to. We hope you get your book out as well. Yes. Holly, where are we going next then? Um, we're going to Wymock Prison in Lancashire. Um, it's a category C prison. Not many people have heard about it. It's kind of tucked away and it, it twins with um, Garth Prison, which is a category B prison and Wymock was a category C prison, but it was renowned for being a um, child offenders prison, mm. shall we say. So very, very um, weighted towards that kind of population. So the, I think there was a, a, a population 
oh, uh, it was quite large, maybe up to like a thousand, maybe as I can remember, and half, at least half of them were in for offences against children. Oh my goodness, um, 500 of them together. Yeah, so the prison was, to kind of give you an image, the prison was split in two. So uh, we had regular, um, what we call cat C prisoners on one side, and then the other side were these prisoners. And obviously never the twain shall meet because there would have been absolute chaos. So yeah, that was... Um, do the twain meet sometimes by accident? Yeah, well, not so much by accident because there's really strict protocols about keeping them apart. But during my time there, um, what they used to do is separate the religious services. So on a Sunday, you'd have two uh, regular Church of England services. You'd have two Roman Catholic services. On a Friday, you would have two um, Muslim prayers. So it it you know it was very difficult to manage in staff intensive so there was a move whilst i was there towards the sort of um end of my service at wymot to mix the groups with the thoughts being if you are coming to church or if you are coming to pray then you should be a good enough person not to fight with the people that you're interacting with to my knowledge there weren't any issues because basically you were told any any problems you get hoiked off and you don't get a chance to go again and a lot of them like going to the services because it was just another way for them to chat with each other deal drugs do whatever they wanted to do them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's an, basically an extra hour and they got to have a bit of a sing song and you know sometimes they get some tea and coffee and biscuits so you know it's quite a privilege to go to to religious <laughs> services so when you started work at this prison then and these offenders have got such heinous crimes. Are you able to access the files of what they've actually done? Yes, yeah, if I, if I wanted to. If you wanted to. But it was not common that I wanted to. What would make you want to? Um, well, if we're doing something like, uh, if we're trying to um, plan their sort of rehabilitation programme for whilst they're in prison, so if they're gonna engage in certain activities, if we need to do, to do something called, and this is technical language, which I hate, a risk assessment. So you have to assess them based on what their offences were. Was it violent? What was the age, the sex of the victim, stuff like that. Whether there were people that were comparable in the prison that we needed to protect from them. Um, so yeah, I could find out if I wanted to. It's not often. We, we also had access to what's called pre-sentence reports. And what pre-sentence reports do is um, they're completed by probation and they are uh, quite a lengthy document which goes into all the sort of factors within the offending. So, but also the offender's history and previous offences and stuff like that. So it's not something I particularly wanted to get involved in. It, I found it hard enough just dealing with them. I didn't really want to know. What were the challenges? Why was it hard? A lot of them were, a huge percentage were in denial, which is, so you can understand from their perspective, if you are convicted of that offence, you're going to say to your family and friends, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Because whilst you're in prison, you need the support of your family and friends. You need people to send you money in, you want to get your visits. So people will adamantly deny it 
um, they will go through appeal after appeal after appeal just to sort of prove to the world even though if they're caught absolutely bang to rights they will still do it so i found those because they take a a sort of holier than thou attitude as in i'm completely innocent how how dare you accuse me of this heinous crime how dare you you know imprison me and and i think that lack of responsibility um it also meant that whilst they were uh, denying their offence, they can't engage in uh, rehabilitation activities because they're saying, well, I didn't do it, so how can I be rehabilitated? So you're sort of stuck with this, this group of people that don't want to engage, don't want to join in the regime, don't want to engage in rehabilitation. Um, and I actually work with the families of them as well. So that was really bizarre. And that was a significant challenge because what all the sort of, uh, I wouldn't say funding, but resources often went to the category C prisoners. Sort of one of my jobs was to make sure that access to families and, and, and family visits and family days and things like that was equal. So I used to hold family meetings outside the prison with the families of these guys. And it was really shocking to hear the family perspective in as much as they 100% believed their partner, their dad, whoever it was. And it was quite, they'd quite, they'd try and draw you in to say, well, what's your opinion? You know, how do you think their appeal are going? You're thinking, there's DNA evidence, there's this, there's that, there's the other. How can you deny it? But they're in this sort of bubble of, of, like all of them are in complete denial and I found that really difficult because I know it's not an offence that anyone wants to hold their hands up to but as a, as a manager dealing with that I'd have more respect for someone to say yes I've got a problem please give me help mm. uh, the other challenges were the sig significant amounts of self-harm in that side of the population um, I think I mentioned on part one that a lot of them see themselves as victims um, so they, um, they're ill a lot of the time, you know, they've, they're, they're, or they're, they're actually quite an elderly population as well. A lot of them are, are, are quite, quite a bit older. So a lot of them are ill, a lot of them have self-harm, a lot of them are all like quite, woe is me and I'm so meek and mild and it's kind of like, oh, give me an in-your-face violent prisoner any day of the week because you know what you're dealing with and you, you're like, yeah, they are what they are. A lot of stuff went underhand at, at, at the prison, so we worked very closely with the police as well. So they'd be networking whilst they were in prison as well. So they'd be writing to other offenders at other prisons and stuff like that. Or What was the purpose of that? Um in order to create networks that they could continue once they were released. Is that how rings form? Um, we, we, well, I say we, uh, not me personally, but there, there was some success in busting um, rings or potential rings, like say there, there might be a prison ring that then will translate to outside. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's normal or natural, but they're going to gravitate towards each other because you know mm. that they have something in common they have something in common and yeah. you know other people ostracize them which again i've talked about so would you say that putting them together like that actually presents a danger to society of course 
Um, absolutely, they feed feed a lot of them if they are that weighing. I mean, some of them are maybe one-off offences, you know, um, but there are others that are habitual repeat offenders. Um, and yeah, they, they will feed off each other. I mean, I, I don't want to know about some of the conversations that went on behind closed doors or, you know. It, Did you ever see any of the messages passed around? Uh, no, but they they um, they kept a lot of that quite um, secure within the prison because we had something called a public protection unit who worked closely with police and social services. So that kind of information was often held quite securely in the prison. Little bits did come out, uh, or say, for example, you do a um, cell search. Um, I, I can't remember if it was a wine or Liverpool. So like one guy. They, at the time, they were allowed, like, soft-core porn magazines. And one guy had cut a picture. That, they also were allowed a, um, what's they called, when you, when you order from a catalogue. Catalog. That's it. Yeah. And they'd cut the faces of the children out of the catalogue. Oh, my. And place them onto the soft-core porn magazines. So that was, yeah, pretty grim. So these, like... These are the challenges are like overwhelming. It's coming from like every direction. You're like within ten minutes, I'm already hearing yeah. things I've never ever yeah. heard before about prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, they're not not a nice bunch of people to deal no. with, and like I say, particularly the ones in denial that are, you know, think that they they will challenge you a bit more. The other ones that are sort of more resigned to their sentence and not, and you know. A, 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 not going anywhere let's say um that they're, they're fine they're just creepy uh, but the ones that are in denial are the ones that will you know challenge you on every opportunity and you just the frustration and the anger would build up because you're like you really just want to yeah. say to them who do you think you are you know but you can't because you're professional and etc etc but so in the population of Offenders that are attracted to kids, if there's that many of them, is there a hierarchy? Um, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say so. It was kind of like, um, I mean, obviously people that, within the prison, people that commit offences against children are the lowest of the low. But quite often, uh, we called them, uh, vulner VPs we called them, so they were vulnerable prisoners. So quite often you might also have mixed in there people that might have battered old grannies whilst they were robbing them and things like that, or you know a one-off offence, a, a sexual assault against a, a woman or whatever. So there was a hierarchy within the vulnerable population, definitely. Um, but like I say, once again, if you're in prison to protect yourself, what you're going to do? You're going to deny it, because there were occasions where what what I would call a VP would be on what's called normal location. But because they so vehemently denied their offence, people just kind of said, well, he can't have done it, so he's all right by us. So it served them in a lot of ways to, to maintain that. Um, surely being in a VP wing, they can all congregate together. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. make big, big plans. They can do, and that's why the police were always heavily involved. You know, there was there was a, a, always a two-way flow of information between the police because the police always have a, a specialised unit outside, not outside the prison, but within the, the sort of local forces. 
they will have specialised units that deal with these people. And they, the, the two-way flow of information was, was um, yeah, phenomenal because, I mean, later on in my career, I actually worked in public protection and you were literally every day in touch with social services, local authorities, police. We worked really, really closely with police because they are so dangerous and they are so likely to reoffend. Um, so yeah, God only knows what what has been planned or um, you know actually has come to fruition from from purely from mixing with each other in prison. And were the police quite helpful in all of this? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, yeah, the flow of information was fantastic. They also came in and did training for us, which was a real eye opener. Um, so they they came in and, and did training for us on sort of because they're quite often writing code as well so if they because they know their mail is monitored and they know their phone calls are monitored so they develop their own code so the police would like um sort of they did this training package for us to sort of pick up sort of little sort of red flags should we say if they're planning things so yeah if they're writing in code certain items so um another thing that they um <clears throat> showed us to look out for is something called offense mirroring so um i'll give the example the the one of the the children's heads on the catalog so if this person had been done for uh, photographs or anything you know indecent photographs of children or offenses that would be the fact that we would find that shows that he's still very high risk because he's what's called offence mirroring in prison. So yeah, I mean, it, it sounds grotesque, but it was also interesting, you know, because it's like a part of the human psyche that normal, inverted commas, people don't ever get to see. And what was the punishment for getting caught with these like magazines? And... Well, this is the problem. It wasn't against prison rules. It's not against prison rules to cut something out and stick it on a another piece of paper you know so all we could do we would flag it up as a security concern we would flag it up and pass it to our public protection unit but in terms of actual um disciplinary responses we didn't have we didn't have any any opportunity to do that that's ridiculous yeah yeah and 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 yeah and the, and these people just but they were very sly very unhanded and because they weren't in your face and you know being really disruptive I think the kind of feeling was I'll oh, just ugh, hate to say this let them get on with it you know let them let them do what they're gonna do mm. Which... what about that I don't know if we talked about this in part one that guy who got arrested because he wrote like a how-to book and he was in Thailand and all that stuff he, oh, got, mur yes. he got murdered yeah. didn't he yes he got out oh, Murdered at the Cathay prison, what wasn't was his it? name Huckle or something? Yes, yeah. And they considered him the most evil... The most dangerous... ...one of ever of yeah, I mean, people he, who commit crimes against kids. He had... He wrote a how-to manual. How to abuse kids. He, yeah. go, go to these countries, find these families in these poor regions and say that you're going to be this and help them this and, and get this how you get the kids from them and then do this. And, and he taught English, didn't oh. he? I think he taught English. I think he was involved in sort of religious... Yeah things as well so it was horrendous he had i mean i never came across him but I, I am not surprised at all that he was he was um murdered in prison i mean he had literally hundreds if not thousands of victims, of victims. Yeah, yeah. and he was in a position of power 
No, he was well. He was, he was young, in a position he was young, of power wasn't he? over the kids. kids. Yeah. yeah, I think he he used to go and volunteer for charities, and he used to go out there in, uh, to the place like Vietnam and Thailand, and he would uh, teach English, um, but he'd ingratiate, like say, ingratiate himself with the local families, who would then put him up giving board and food and things like that and then obviously he'd he'd do what he did but yeah i'm not unsurprised at all that he but yeah he was relatively young he was i young. think he was in his his, his 20s i'm just going to take my glasses off yeah. i keep slipping off my nose um he was re- yeah i think he was in his 20s but i think he was quite intelligent as well and i think that's a that's the scary thing a lot of them are not your bog standard what you would consider offender so we we i'm not saying all of them by any state you know any means but a lot of the again inverted commas normal prisoners that you see don't have great education don't have you know a brilliant uh, background um but you know some of the ones that on the other side they teachers you know people older men in in positions of power or you know um, very well-to-do people, you know, it spans every walk of life, every type of person, every age, every career was in there. And again, they could be slightly more intelligent, which means they think they can tie you in knots and, you know, the the in denial, I'm holier than thou, I'm also cleverer than you. So it doesn't surprise me that someone developed that skill that manipulative skill combined with their intelligence to then go on to commit is that how they were able to pass around messages no it's because they're very they're they're considered because they're considered relatively low risk in terms of their behavior so they're not likely to riot they're not likely to assault each other they're not likely to do anything like that so actually the staffing resources are less because they need they're considered they need less supervision um, so if they're out and about, for example, you, you're not going to have staff observing them all day, every day. So they can, you know, quite openly congregate, quite openly, you know, speak without ears around and stuff like that. So it's dead, dead easy to pass messages. You and know. if they're more well behaved, then do they get assigned jobs that could get them to move around the yep, system? Yeah. So um, every prison um, will have its own like workshops or activities whether it be education, it might be sort of like woodwork, some of them, leather shops, you know, um, all sorts of fixing bikes and wheelchairs and things like that. But obviously, again, because the nature of Wymot, it had what we call a split site. So there'd be workshops for for them and workshops for the cat sea and again the, the two because you can imagine the population meeting in a in a mm. workshop where they have access to tools and lumps of wood and things like that would be not a chaos but yeah so a lot of them would do education for example um but there's also jobs for prisoners helping other prisoners so they can act as like mentors and wing representatives and things like that and they love those kinds of jobs i mean did you ever meet any of them who were actually reformed no no absolutely no not at all I, I think it. I think it's impossible. Because we discussed chemical castration, yes. didn't we? Yeah, last time? yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people in the comments were for chemical castration. Yeah. Are you for chemical castration? Mm-hmm. I, I just think <laughs> it's a, it's a, um, it's a predisposition. It's a, 
I think it's a combination nature and nurture. There are some people that it hasn't happened to that go on to do it, and there's some that go on to do it that have had you know wonderful lives, and it's just part of who they are. Um, I think I, I mentioned the sex offender treatment program in the last in the the last um, part, and it doesn't rewire your brain. There's no magic pill that you can take that's going to stop you feeling this way. There are sort of cognitive behavioural type things you can teach people to avoid high risk situations like they know not to go near a play park, they know not to go shopping when kids are coming out of school for example but no, not one that I would consider reformed at all. So Holly, at or this... remorseful should mm. I say. When you started at that prison mm. what was your job title? Oh we're going back now. Um, I started off, I worked on the wing, so I was responsible for two wings. Again, I was always had the big wings, so I had a cat C wing and I also had a child offenders wing. Now the ones on the wings were the worst of the worst, so they were the really badly behaved ones, they were the ones that were, you know, not more manageable on the other side of the prison, the open side. So these lot were, it, like, like imagine one big wing, split down the middle, child offenders one side, cat scene the other side, and I manage both. So really diverse population. So you, you're not a governor yet though, are you? Yeah, I was a governor there, but I managed, okay. I managed the wing. Yeah. Have you told us then yet how you became a governor? We've not done that, have we? No. Uh, I think, did we not? Okay. Well, you were still... I was still. Like, we said all oh, your governor stuff yet to ago. come. Yeah. Okay. I Remember? Yes. We're gonna have to go back. Okay. So we'll have to, but it, not go back too far to be okay. fair. Okay. So towards my sort of end of my service at Liverpool, I, I did think I mentioned I was studying for sort of my governor exams. Yeah. And it did take about twelve to eighteen months of like because I th I failed the first time, gave myself a little bit of a rest, and then put my heart and soul into passing. The, the next phase um, and that took about 12 to 18 months of like assessments and hard work and revising and and so then I went through my exams I went through my assessments and I think <laughs> I passed by about one <laughs> percent <laughs> and I remember being called into the big governor's office and uh, he said well I've got some news for you and he just went a pass is a pass and I went 51 percent <laughs> and he went doesn't matter you've got your ticket um and he did offer me a job straight away at Liverpool as a as a as a governor but I think I, I mentioned previously that I get bored quite quickly I'd done four years at Liverpool both as an acting up governor as a principal officer and I wanted to try something different and going from like the 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 manicness of liverpool when i went to walk around weimar it was actually dead quiet so i thought oh this will be a breeze this will be a walk in the park but then we had all you come into you know all those issues that i talked about um, you didn't have to deal with purple acne anymore no no <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny actually someone in the comments 
um, from the last episode obviously knows me and says, I remember you, you gave me 14 days <laughs> down, down the segregation unit. I do you know that's uh, someone I know very well. Oh, is it? <laughs> he told me, what is it? Me saying he was doing it in the comments. To yeah. I won't name no names. No, but he's saying what? Because I remember I did that quite often because they wanted to detox and the only place you could detox if you'd been using heavily on the wing was to do it down the segregation unit. But staff hated it. Staff hated people, one, taking up space, and two, just using it as like a... But I was always quite, you know, when someone needs it. Anna gave them a TV, which would have... <laughs> staff would hate me for that as well, but... So what's that like then, just to go from a regular position to mm. arrive at a new position as the boss? Um, or, or you treated differently yeah, were you well respected in part one you mentioned like the sexism and stuff were you now at a different level of yeah yeah i think i mean liverpool was still quite misogynistic it's still uh, quite masonic in how it was uh, run <laughs> um did we cover that last time the no, masonic side no shall we <laughs> <laughs> I used... stop right there <laughs> can i tickle your palm <laughs> no, you i'm definitely not Why is it that? <laughs> is it? so, oh, so liverpool was masonic i can't believe we didn't go no. over this shit oh right. the whole of the no Throughout the beginning. see the title now. Yeah, you've just made sure it's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Our viewers are obsessed with Freemason stories. Okay. Yeah, please lay it down. Um, <laughs> so it was renowned. So I think I mentioned, didn't I, that it was heavily male-dominated. Yes. Um, and, I mean, I was quite lucky. I don't ever felt that I got passed over for promotion at all. But I know a hell of a lot of people that were... Um, it was ve kept very much under wraps, but was so obvious. It was like the biggest open secret that you've ever had. So you, there were people in certain lodges that you knew were in certain lodges. Um, and I would say, oh God, I hope he doesn't see this or go. But anyway, so we used to have an area manager who managed the whole of the Northwest. And it was well known that he had all his cronies working in high-ranking positions in other prisons and at one point the only way you could get a job the only way was if you were in the right lodge or you'd been recommended by someone no and that was the case for, for many many years what years uh, roughly were they i would say from the 80s up until the 2000s easily wow. um uh, they did actually make it a condition uh, a requirement of um service that you had to declare if you remember if you were a member of the uh, masons because it had been such a problem i think the police force had similar issues well, it was definitely mirrored in the prison service. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was so, I mean, like I say, it didn't affect me because I didn't feel, I wasn't, obviously wasn't in a lodge, but I knew female governors whose partners were in the Masons and then they were in some sort of female a female mason. Equivalent. I mean, they weren't called masons. They were called, heard of this? They were called, mm. oh God, I'm trying to remember that. Something ridiculous like Order of the Purple 
flower or something. I, I, I maybe She's make a purple it, flower. I know. I make it. <laughs> I'm being like really dramatic there, but there is some sort of for the wives. Everyone's gonna be googling this. Like, I know. Liverpool female masons. No, it's for for the wives and girlfriends. For the wives and girlfriends. Masons. Of the masons, they have their own group. Yeah. Their own gang. I didn't notice. Yeah. Neither did I. Yeah. So, so you said that it was causing problems, that's why they had to ask him if you're a mason. Yeah. What problems was it causing? Literally, so one, one of the things that used to happen, before retirement, a mason would promote a mason to get on the highest tier of... So you obviously, it used to be like golden handshake pension. Mm. So you'd retire on the highest as high as you could get, that would be your that would be your rest of life pension, not based over your, sort of your contribution over the whole of your service. So then, quick, you'd you'd find someone who suddenly jumped up like four ranks <laughs> in the space of twelve months and was on like I mean, it doesn't sound a lot of money, but it was back then, you know, on sixty grand a year, and you'd be like, and that's what they would finish on, and you'd be like, and it was so blatant, it was so obvious. And it was like, they'd all deny it. It was like I say, those, that were, those of us that weren't, it was kind of like, they're bloody Mason, that's how they've got it. We had a guest on, John Sutton, who was run out of the guards by the Freemasons. They actually physically assaulted him? Yes. I've heard, I've heard of, uh, I was going to say his name then, I, I know exactly who you mean. And, and like I said, I think that was sort of 80s, 90s. There was there was union issues as well at the time then when the union was, um, again, I, I use this phrase, they're all pissed in the same pot. That's <laughs> And that's what I used to say, you know, I used to, I had male colleagues that were, were pa- exactly, they weren't assaulted, but like passed over for promotion or ostracised. There was definitely cliques within the establishments that I worked in. Does that create a big divide then yeah, amongst the staff? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think staff would be pissed. You know, staff would just be like, oh, you know, they're promoting the mates that, you know, staff could, so it never seemed fair to people. And for those poor, naive, asked to say it was guys, poor naive guys that thought just hard work will get them through bollocks. It was pure, you know, a lot of the time it was recommendation. It was, I mean, to the point where number one governors would come in, like snap like that. And you'd think you're not qualified to be here. This isn't, you, you shouldn't be here. You've not done what you needed, you know, you've not done what you needed to do to work at this level. Honestly, it, and it was just so frustrating. And did they struggle coming in at that level? No, because they got looked after by all the other people <laughs> underneath them. It was like I said, they all pissed in the same pot. They all looked after each other. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying it happened sort of on my watch, but I'm pretty certain that things were covered up and stuff was brushed under the carpet. And What would happen if a regular worker called out the Freemasons within the jet prison mm-hmm. system? Um, would that be cause problems? Like, like? It's, I would have conversations about it with people I knew I could trust. There were some people, and or there were some people that I'd have conversations with. So I might take the mick a little bit. Like I had a boss who I thought was, and I might take a little bit. I take the the mick a little bit. I say, oh yeah, you and your mason mates, and he'd be like. God, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm thinking, you bloody are, I know you are, because someone saw you at a lodge the other weekend, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of like an open secret that people, we knew about, 
Um, I do do recall again. It's before my time, but it it was it was a story that I knew. I do recall that um, a guy made a complaint because he'd been passed over for promotion. Clearly, more qualified than the other guy. You know, he got passed over for promotion. He put a complaint in, and it went all the way to the top because it's kind of like mention the word Mason, and everyone goes. <gasps> You know, like no one sort of said, everyone freezes. It's like there's some sort of mythical power, but obviously they did have power. So this guy got passed over, he took it to the highest level, and eventually they came back and gave him his promotion. But yeah, it was just so it was an open secret, but you had to be quite brave to take on because, like, you know, like I said, at one point from, from the very top, i.e., the area manager all the way down it was like mm. like the masonic pyramid that's exactly what it looked like <laughs> in the prisons so if they were called out then they would deny that was that the natural openly deny they would deny so it. the when you had to declare if you were a mason on your service form that just went to hr that got slipped under the carpet and you know never to see the light of day again so they were ticking the box to say oh we've done the bit where they declare they are but they haven't actually done the bit where they tackle all the issues that are coming with it because there were some absolute idiots that were put in positions of power that you just think it's just because you're amazing from your position then did you ever come across prisoners who were been masons or were masons who the guards would then perhaps help or do anything for? No, not that, that I know. Okay. But again, I would, I would say if that did go on, it would have been very much behind closed doors, very quiet, very, you know... Because um, a lot of people think that if you do get in trouble, you could use the police connections and the judge connections as a mason mm. to avoid even going to prison. Well, that's what I was going to say. How are they even in prison in the first place? Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, I, I am aware that there are, there were strong links between courts, prison and police in terms of sort of Masonic links. Uh, again, if you look at the local area, it's not going to be made up of, a lodge is not going to be made up of all prison governors. It's not going to, you know, it's going to have, um, so there, there were none that I were aware of. And even if there were, they wouldn't have to declare that as, as a prisoner coming in. Um but yeah, I would I would suggest if it, they would have to have done something really heinous to end up in prison, where it got to the point where we can no longer cover for your brother. You know, it's like <laughs> your time's up. <laughs> you're in. All right, so we took a little masonic detour there. You've arrived at this prison then now, and yeah. you're the boss. Yeah. And you were saying that it, it's a lot different the way people treated you. Yeah. The staff, I mean, like the prisoners, to speak to the gov is hard, isn't it, for a prisoner? So you but, must be, like, if you come and speak to a prisoner now, you're not just a guard speaking to a prisoner, yeah. are you? you're this esteemed... Well, <laughs> there, there, you have to remember there's a team of governors, so there's not just... We all had our own distinct areas, and there was, like, a little mini hierarchy within the governor structure. So there's not one ultimate boss of the prison, like in America? There's one, but then they have governors working around them. Oh, so there's a main governor? Yeah, so number one governor's, like, untouchable. We don't... Okay. They, they're, yeah, like, the up... Yeah, yeah, they're in the prison, but they're kind of up in the ether doing uh, the finances and the strategy and, and stuff like that. 
and then you have the sort of run of the mill governors. So I, 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 I was never top of the top. I was always okay, gotcha. like, but because in America it's governor, yeah, deputy warden, yes, and then lieutenants yeah. and sergeants. Yeah. So um, you only have one person out of uniform. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we would have what's called a senior management team. Um, and in some places you had what's called a strategic senior manager team. So you were like better than everyone else. But yeah, so you had, because the prison is so, every prison is so big, I guess, and you have different departments. Mm. So when I, when I go on to talk about Manchester later on, I'll talk very sort of specifically about a department I was in charge of, say for custody. Uh, but you'd had reducing reoffending, you'd have security, you'd have operations. So you needed a governor, someone with enough clout to run those individual, to make sort of like strategic decisions, to make budget decisions, finance decisions. So we had a lot of, the, we had the power, we had the, you know, but then we also had our own areas of responsibility. So you might have, for example, a strategic area of responsibility, and then you might have your day-to-day -day area of responsibility. Um, so, yeah. So you've talked about 500 of the offenders who attracted to kids, the management of that side, mm. but you said there was 500 yeah. of the normal prisoners. Yeah. So what was your challenges managing that side? Um, so in a Category C prison, Obviously, it's low, it's slightly lower security, so it's quite a lot easier to get drugs in. And I think over my service, the dynamics of the prison population significantly changed. So we used to keep the, the badly behaved prisoners in a Cat B prison. But as the prisons got overcrowded, all the spaces were in the Category C prisons. So people that you would normally keep in a higher security prison got pushed down because that was where the spaces were and that's where they had to go. Because So the, the Category C population changed over the course of about 20 years from people that were, you know, not so bad to, you know, not so nice people that you would have normally kept under strict conditions. So they were a bit wild, shall we say. So they were, yeah, with less supervision and less, but I would say the incidents were less, but they were still as wild. Um, what qualifies for wild? Um, just more individual fights, I would say the drug use, the, the, the so, so like, one of the funniest things I ever saw was on the segregation year. I mean, there were, there were more instances of individuals acting daft than a collective like gang warfare like there would be at Liverpool. So this one guy, I remember watching him on the camera and I think he'd taken Spice. Um, I don't know if anyone, if people know about Spice, uh, but obviously it sends people absolutely bonkers. So I think he'd had that and he'd had some hooch, some prison alcohol and he'd stripped off and he was doing like cartwheels and handstands <laughs> and things like that on the prison exercise yard and I'm watching him and I'm like oh my lord I don't want to see but you're kind of drawn to it and like <laughs> I don't want to see this but he was so off his rocker that he was like <laughs> it was quite yeah quite amusing so yeah less of a collective um, there was, what was how it? did they stop him <laughs> we didn't we just <laughs> waited for him to burn out <laughs> And when he was burned out, was there a punishment for that? Because was, no. was he nude? Did he say he was nude? Yeah. 
Because isn't, yeah. isn't that a violation if yeah. you're nude? But not really. <laughs> no, no, there, there isn't any. I mean, you could. There are. I, I suppose under the, all the sort of fifty odd prison rules, there are. We probably could have found something. But they're already down the segregation unit. Already lost everything. <laughs> There's not a lot you can do. He was off his tits on drugs and alcohol so it's like he's just doing a few cartwheels he's, yeah he's not doing any harm i'd rather him do that than beat us up but um, but yeah so th- there was the odd bit of gang warfare um more so so like in wymot we used to take people so if you think of liverpool manchester as local prisons wymot was a more generalized prison so we'd take people from manchester liverpool st helens you know even from up north from like cumbria and stuff like that so you had more diversity of sort of maybe gang members but less in terms of numbers um there was quite a lot of bullying that was quite common so when i say they were wild they weren't like like say not you know your rights your full-on brawls and things like that but quite in terms of individuals they were individually problematic and what was the first encounter you seen oh crikey it's difficult to to remember that because i think it was as i recall it was relatively quiet when i first started that and i was like oh i don't like this i'd gone from like like say chaos and busyness and so the first major incident was a um was it a hostage? I can't remember if it was a hostage incident or if it was a guys. That's it. Two guys have got up on a roof. So we call that an incident at height. So an incident at height is classed as a major, major incident. And they have national teams that can come. So in the olden days, <laughs> you'd have had three prison officers chucking up a ladder, dragging them off. Health and safety doesn't allow that anymore. So you have to have a national team that come in and they know it is the most disruptive incident that you can do. So you can like, even if you went up a six foot fence, it's classed as an incident height. So this was sort of my first proper incident at Wymot. So um, I'd just come back from a training to manage incidents. So as a governor, you have to go through quite intensive training in order to being what's called the, the command suite. So you can make, a, and everyone has a specific role. I remember I started with a guy that I'd worked with at Liverpool. We both started together and we were like, finally, bit of action, bit of something to get our, you know, get our teeth into. So we all got called up to the command suite and we were like, right, what is it, what is it? And they said, oh, two guys are on the roof of, of a workshop and I was like, is that it? <laughs> and we're like, what are they doing? And that, I think they'd been throwing stuff at staff, but then once you cleared the area, they've not got anyone to throw anything at. <laughs> they wants to throw anyone, uh, any, you know. Um, so in the, in the meantime, they're doing psychological, this is another thing that used to happen, they do psychological profiles of the prisoners whilst they were, so the ones that committing offence, so you had like a psychologist in there working with you. Wow. Yeah, it was all like, it was all quite crazy. Do you remember the profiles? Uh, low level like um i think I, I again i think i mentioned this in part one it quite often these kinds of incidents were just to leverage something that they wanted nine times out of ten it was a transfer out of the prison that's it because you know once you commit like quite a serious offense like an incident hype because of the level of disruption you can't have those prisoners in your establishment so again nine times out of ten it would be to 
to facilitate transfer and that, as I recall that was the issue with them so they were um, quite often it would be because they're under threat and that was the only way they could see to get out of the prison um, so yeah it, it was like bizarre because it was it's it's like a command suite in like NASA or something like that and you've got like people to do messages and you've got the fire service and the ambulance and the police on standby and you've got this that and the other going on and it's all very dramatic and mm. but me and me and my friend who just come from Liverpool we were just like oh it's just two guys on the roof <laughs> we were like okay the only issue we were more bothered about because if it's protracted you're stuck in there you don't get relief you're stuck in there so it's protect it's so it's it's a real inconvenience for the staff Massive inconvenience for the prisoners, for the regime. For, <laughs> I love my food, so I'd be like, when do I get my tea? That's the most important <laughs> thing. So, yeah, they were up there for, for a good while. Um, but then you have to call, call a national team. So the national team turn up in, like, riot vans and this, that and the other with their airbags ready to, you know... Um, don't know whether they push him off or cajole them off, should we say? <laughs> um, so they they turn up and they're, they're trained to deal with incidents at heights. They'll be on like carabiners and this, that, and the other, and they're um, allowed to. And I think they were wanting to use, um, I can't remember if it's parva, which is like a pepper spray, um, and but they're allowed to use things like flashbangs and they, they can use all the sort of stuff that we, as normal people in the prison, couldn't use. Um, but yeah, they, they would inflate the inflatable bags and <laughs> or get them down. I mean, the guy at Manchester who did the rooftop process, uh, protest, they had to get a cherry picker to what? get him down. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite funny. How did these two get down? Uh, oh, I can't. Do you know what? I can't even remember now. But they came, they came, they were up there a good while, they, but not enough to disrupt my tea. That's, <laughs> that's kind of it. I judge instance by whether I've got my food or not. <laughs> I heard in your last podcast about your egg sandwich. Yeah, people are like, how can you eat with that that going on? I'm just like, Do you know what? I'm so hungry. <laughs> nothing, nothing was going to stop me. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Harry's. Having such a scratchy face, I'm always delighted to get a new Harry's set. There's a foaming gel, hydrating night lotion, and the razor with the weighted handle really gets the job done. The trimmer blade makes it so easy to get into those tricky places to reach. The shave gel offers effective lubrication and just comes off like butter. It's such a smooth shave. It shaves fast, efficiently, no discomfort, and it is so smooth by the end. The hydrating night lotion is light and non-greasy. Harry's is doing a zero pounds trial. Start shaving with the products just pay for delivery. Save every time. Save on all your shaving products without sacrificing quality. You're in control. You can modify or cancel your plan from the account page. Make sure to support our podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and have your trial set delivered to your door. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. So at that prison then, what were the most severe acts of inmate on inmate violence and inmate on staff violence? 
Yeah, oh, crikey. In fact, just after, just after I'd started, just around the same time at Weimar, a member of staff had been hit over the head with a, a, a lump of wood. They had a woodworking shop there. So it's it's it wasn't a table leg, but it was a sort of squared off piece, and they were they were basically battered with that. Do you know what led up to that? No, but like I said, it it can be anything in a prison. It can it can literally be you know, it, it can be the member of the staff is an asshole, or it might be that they've done absolutely nothing wrong, and the prisoners come out and just thought you're getting it today. They might have been wound up by people. They might, again might be trying to leverage some sort of. Um, treatment like a transfer or something like that um so i remember and as i recall the member of staff was a decent person and it was just wrong place wrong time type of thing um in terms of their assaults on each other the i would say it it was more fights at why not at liverpool it would definitely be slashings definitely that was um that was the really sort of popular thing to do uh, um why it would be more because they, they even I, though I call them wild, they weren't necessarily really, really violent. They, you know, they were, and they had sentences to do. So if you think of the population at Liverpool who had an opportunity to get out if they were on remand, these prisoners had more. They were more towards the end of the sentence, so they were a little bit better behaved in terms of of that because they knew if they didn't, they get days added, they would get a police conviction or whatever. So yeah, I always just thought it'd be general, general fights. I don't remember dealing with a slashing at Wymot, but I do, I do remember that member of staff being really, really badly hurt. Um, so how do you deal with a slashing? <laughs> I'm not laughing at that. It's <laughs> awful. I've just got visions of one that I did deal with at Manchester, but yeah, it was. They were pretty gruesome. I mean, I've I've got a couple of really serious slashing storage in Manchester which I'll talk about later um I think I said in the first one I'm not good with blood at all in any shape or form um but you have to and if generally you're the first per not not me per se but if I was round and about or you're on duty you're duty governor you you have to go and see the prison you have to check on the welfare I mean I've seen people with like flaps of skin oh hanging off the face the double blade mm. but literally like a flap of skin oh. and i'm like Whoo! and the nurses were fabulous the nurses were like battle worn they were just like nothing phased the nurses they were just like the hardest people ever and they're just like try and glue them or pat. it was very rare that we'd have to send someone out in an ambulance but we did have people that we had to send out in an ambulance um occasionally they'd, they'd go for the neck but not do a very good job people think that slashing a neck's quite easy you need to put quite a bit of force into this sounds gruesome doesn't it you have to put quite a bit of force into slashing someone's neck where the face is nice and soft the skin's nice and soft so it's oh. dead easy to go for but you you know the troublemakers in prison you'd know the ones that had been through the ringer because they they would have the, the the scars down the face and stuff like that so yeah, it it wasn't nice, <laughs> but I will tell you. I remind me to tell you the story about yeah, I'll remind the, you about the slashing story. about Manchester. Manchester. And again, yeah. I'm not laughing at the person. It was pretty. I'm more laughing at my re- response and reactions because 
I was just trying to do my best in the absence of any healthcare professional. So as you can manage, it went a bit wrong. <laughs> so what are the other major stories from your first governor position then? There weren't really. I think um, this is going to sound a terrible confession now. Um, I got quite bored at Weimar. <laughs> you know, I thought you were going to say something like that. Yeah, I got quite <laughs> bored at Weimar. Uh, I did some uh, lovely jobs. Uh, but the problem is it, there was quite a lot of micromanagement there it, and, and I'm kind of like a bit of a free spirit and I'm like, let me be, I can, you know, and um, yeah, there was, the I think the culture of the senior management team I, I didn't really gel into. Um, I, I was starting, I was married at the time. Um, and I thought, what a perfect time to have a baby <laughs> working at a prison that I didn't want to work at. Um, wow. Yeah, so um, I ended up getting pregnant. I worked um, for seven months there whilst I was pregnant. Took 13 months off, which was fabulous. Uh, and then came back. But as I came back, they were restructuring the, man the senior management. So they basically culled a lot of governors. Sorry, that's something that you were pregnant. What, what? Working in the prison, yeah. What was that like? So, <laughs> right, so I'd, they knew I was pregnant because I told them, because I, I had a miscarriage previously at work. So they were aware of sort of issues. So as soon as I got pregnant, I was expecting to be whisked away, put in a lovely fluffy cloud and, <laughs> and like protected. Because that was the protocol, that was the health and safety protocol that pregnant women completely removed from um, prisoner facing duties. That wasn't the case. I, I remember being in the segregation unit at three months pregnant, dealing with a guy who was freaking out. Um, and I don't think staff knew at the time because I didn't want to say it. So the bosses knew, but the staff didn't know. And I think, I, I, I can't, I don't get me wrong, I don't think I was forced to, I think I could have upped and gone if I wanted to, uh, but yeah, I still remember working on the segregation unit with, with prisoners that were, uh, you know, in crisis or violent or whatever. Um, as I started to, I think it was about four months when I was just starting to show a little bit and people knew I was pregnant that they took me off into sort of more of a, a strategic role which was boring as shit. So I was just like, oh. So basically I just spent the last sort of time at Wymore getting fatter and fatter and crying a lot. I remember crying a lot, eating a lot, moaning a lot, which is probably I still do. <laughs> um, and, and then did anything so I took, and then took 13 months off. I never felt vulnerable though. I the never- The didn't say anything about No, you. they didn't. No, they, and they didn't. Uh, I used to do quite a lot of family days at the time um, and I was always one for the kids so I'd like be playing with the prisoners kids so they knew that I was quite child friendly and they you know they were quite respectful of me so not one of them like tried to touch my bump or anything like that thank god because that would have been really awkward with the previous pregnancy then mm. do you think that they because they didn't insulate you that time it the stress of that perhaps led to that no but I carried on going to work whilst it was happening when um, I really think I should have been sent home. Yeah. I mean, I did get called in by one person. This, you see, this was the pressure as a senior manager. So I found out, I think I found out I was pregnant on the Friday, really overjoyed 
by the Sunday, Monday, I'd started to have a miscarriage. But the pressure to not be off sick was huge. As a senior manager, you, it was deemed, at the time, it has got better, but it was deemed absolutely not heard of. You do not take time off. You are a role model to the staff. Um, and and you d- you basically don't go sick. So I remember, and it so was, you went into work uh, as it as it was going on. Yeah. Oh my god, oh my god that's so sad. Several, you know, and it uh, one person and I explained to them what was happening. No dispensation was made, and I suppose that partly my fault because I was like, no, I'm I'm t- you expect me to be tough, so I'm going to act tough. But I wasn't. I was in absolute pieces, you know, and physically and mentally. And um, I think one guy turned and just said, do you really think you should be here? And I suppose I could have gone home, but the pressure was to stay. Like I say, that front, that maintaining that, yeah, I'm one of the, I'm on the boys, you can rely on me. Because again, women, you had to be a woman, but act like a man, you know, you had to, you had to be tough, but you, you couldn't be vulnerable, you, you know, it was quite, it was, it was quite, you never really knew where you stood, a lot, a lot of the women uh, that got high up in the prison service chose not to have children, I mean, a lot do now, like I say, I'm going back sometime, but a lot chose not to have children, because the pressures of the job, and the job is all consuming, and it's impossible to balance the two. So what um, direction did your career go in after you had your child? I came back, so as I mentioned, there was a national restructure and they were dishing out early uh, redundancies to all and sundry. I applied, didn't get it. Uh, I know, I was like, I'm ready to go now. I'd enjoyed my, I'd like travelled around the world in the in the time that I've been off on returns. I'm like, I can do this. Um, so they were, they were offering voluntary redundancies. So I applied for redundancy, didn't get it. Um, basically there was, so... Some prisons would have too many governors, some wouldn't have enough, and there was a job opportunity at Manchester. And I remember the governor there at the time was this hallowed, he was, we loved him. He's, I mean, he's really high up in the prison service now, but he was renowned across the service as someone that you wanted to work for. And he set the tone for the jail. The jail had a fantastic reputation. Uh, don't get me wrong, I was shitting myself about Cat A prison because I'm like, I've always been in my own little comfort zone. That was really out of my comfort zone. Uh, but he was very pro-women, this, this guy, this governor. He was really pro get women in you know, strategic roles. And I think I went and he took me round. So this hallowed, I'll follow you into the trenches type of guy showed me round personally. Um, and I was kind of like a bit in awe of him and I did my usual like chat my bullshit and you know try and charm him and win him over but I think you know he saw because you do these unofficial walk arounds which is like an unofficial interview before your real interview so I think it was sort of like more to watch me and I think he saw how I interacted with staff with prisoners and uh, I got given a a four-week temporary job there with 
but I still had to be interviewed for my job and kind so, of... So what year are we on now? Is this strange way? Yeah. Yes, so now we are on, so I have my little boy in 2010, so this is 2012. Was it strange ways then or was it HMP Manchester? HMP Manchester. Okay. Yeah, it kind of, after the riots, they tried to ditch the strange ways moniker because they sort of reinvented themselves and reinvented the prison. And what was it like going back after you've had your baby, you're going back into the prison service, how did it differ? Um... Were you missing the action? Sean! I missed... I was, like, really excited to get to Manchester. I think... So, sort of, like... Because I'd had my little boy and then gone back to Wymock for a few weeks um, and I'd find that tough because, obviously, I'd left him at home or in nursery, so that was quite difficult. Got to Manchester and, like... Baby who? (laughs) It was like, that sounds awful, but it was kind of like another chance to reinvent yourself, another chance to take on a new challenge and to, you know, and it, and it was, it was really good and it was relatively close to home and um, they were very pro women, you know, they were very pro, you know, if your baby's sick, you go, you know, that, and that was sort of, again, that wasn't common in a lot of prisons. It was kind of like, well, can you get someone else to sort it out? Whereas there, it was like, no, he, he was, you know, the, the the one in charge was very pro staff and very. So I felt very comfortable going there, knowing that if I had any issues, it it would be fine. So yeah, that was two thousand and twelve, and um, I'm trying to remember the first position that I went into. I can't remember. I think. Because you did quite a long induction because you're dealing with category A prisoners, which are um, obviously there's there's a whole new set of rules. It's like a whole new landscape, which is really difficult for someone that. Ha- so you can work at sort of like a reasonable security level, like Liverpool, which is a cap B. But like I said, this was like, whoa. The, and I'd be like, what? I'm like mind blown at the, the level of security that you needed to get into the prison. Um, it, like I say, even just going through the search, is like, it, it was more intensive than going through a airport, for example. So, you know, that, so, you know, anything that you got caught with, not that you'd take anything, but you know, it was like impossible virtually to, to bring any, any contraband in. And then within, so the CATE unit was like a unit within a unit. Then you had the segregation that was like a unit within a unit within a unit. And then you had something called the SSU, which was a specialised unit, which was, would only hold four or five prisoners, which was like the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst, that serviced the whole of the Cate estate. Is that where double Cate would go in SSU? Is that something different? No. So the SSU um, could take, so it's called high-risk Cates. So we have Cates and high-risk um, and it could it had the security level to hold the highest level uh, category prisoner, but what the SSU would hold is so again so you had four or five spaces that serviced the whole of the category A estate. So that unit was like a psychological intervention unit for the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst. Oh wow! So prisoners that had murdered other prisoners prisoners that were just deemed completely unmanageable in 
So to me, a prisoner that's completely unmanageable in the category A estate, where the staffing is higher, where the security is higher, where we have dogs. That was a new thing. We had dogs. And I was just like, you had all these like Alsatian German shepherds wandering around. I remember one guy had a puppy. And I remember going to pet it because when they're little, you're allowed to pet them. And it bloody bit me. And I'm like, but yeah, they were terrified of the dogs terrified if you sent the dogs in they'd just scatter <laughs> they were <laughs> who was in this ssu did you say it was SSU? so the um there was a guy in there I, he murdered the asian guy at felton prison uh, the uh, if you remember the mubarak report that came out about racism in prisons so he um i won't give his name but he because he's still in custody he murdered a um, young, this is going back years when he was, he was a young offender. He murdered a um, Asian young offender. They were put in a cell together and there was a massive, massive investigation because this guy, the one that had ended up in the SSU, was um, found to be, it was well known that he was a racist. And it, he was known for antisocial personality, you know, really sort of uh, odd behaviour, you know, he was known to be violent, had a history of violence, was a known racist, put in with uh, this this poor guy, this Asian guy, only serving a short sentence, was due to get out, he murdered him overnight. So once you've murdered a prisoner in the prison state, so for example, Robert Maudsley. Oh, Maudsley. So you, I mean, obviously he killed he killed more than one. Do you want to tell Jen about him? Yes, please. So he, um, Robert Morsey's guy from Liverpool, and he had a horrific upbringing. I mean, absolutely terrible, terrible upbringing. Horrifically abused, in and out of care, um, started using drugs, working as a rent boy. Um, I can't remember if he committed, what offence he committed outside to end up in prison. I, th- I think he, um, he, murdered a guy he was working as a rent boy and he murdered a guy because he had admitted to child offenses and obviously as he'd been a victim himself he flipped and 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 murdered this guy and he got sent to prison whilst he was in prison he then went on to murder two other people so he got the he got the moniker as being named a cannibal um because there was rumors and and it's they say this isn't true, but there was rumours that um, he'd split this guy's head open and started open and eating his brain. Oh. Now, there, there, there are a lot of people that dispute this and dispute this, this story, but he, he, ki- he killed two, he legitimately killed one prisoner, one prisoner and, and, and killed another. So he's deemed like highly, I mean, in America, it's not unheard, you know, it's, a lot more common for prisoner prisoner on prisoner murders in the uk it's like unheard of so he committed these offenses like these offenses in prison decades ago and he now lives in a perspex cell and a doesn't letter and doesn't see the exactly and doesn't see the light of day very often has no sort of social contact has no and he has categorically said to psychiatrists if you release me I will kill again, but he's like, I'm not saying he's a reformed character, but his risk within prison has definitely diminished. He's an older guy now, um, but he's still treated to these highest level 
security conditions. So he's still in the perspex. Yeah. 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 With very little, like I said, very little human contact and um, quite a sad story. I mean, obviously not condoning what he did, but you know, it's a very sad story. And, and this, this other guy that I'm talking about who committed this, this murder in Feltham, he again, you know, was, was kept in really in the SSU because he, he, you know, once you've killed someone in prison, you're deemed a really, really high risk person. Because they say in the prison estate, the best predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour. So, um, yeah, so so he was in the SSU. So it tended to be not really well-known people. It tended to be problematic people. So not necessarily high profile, but people that were the habitual self-harmers, for example, and not just talking minor self-harm, talking... Um, there was the odd gangster in there. Um, there, there was one guy who committed a hideous, hideous assault on two members of staff. So um, he was a lifer. He was known in the news, but I can't for the life of me recall which one he was. But he was, I think, he was a double murderer outside of prison. Coming into prison, his behaviour had been incredibly disruptive around the Cate estate. He was brought onto the SSU. And the SSU used to have cameras everywhere. So it, at the time, you were allowed cameras in the cell and you had cameras on the landing. And it was a small unit, you know, it wasn't big. If you think it was a unit for like four or five prisoners, had a staff office, um, and that was it really. It wasn't, you know, big. And you saw. We, we we saw the outcome of the injuries and we saw the video and it like I say it's chilling so when you're escorting prisoners like dangerous prisoners you have what's called a staff unlock so if you're a normal bog standard Sean Atwood is fine Holly will go and unlock you and Don't. yeah no, I well I wouldn't personally but I'd send the dogs in but, <laughs> but I would I would unlock you on my own and off you go and there'd be no problem. Sean Atwood, the more problematic prisoner, there'd be two of us. The more problematic you get, three, four, five, dog, you know, senior officers sometimes. So you might be a senior officer and three officers. So that tended to be the standard for, for prisoners on the SSU. So it'd be a senior officer and three officers. So when you escort these prisoners, you're meant to escort them in what's called a box formation. So never happens. The prisoner stays in the middle. You have two staff at the back, two staff at the front. So that's so anything yeah. goes wrong, if they're launching forward, you can just basically converge on them. Um, so, and this is no, this is no thing of the staff because as you're navigating through the, through the area, you've got to move, you've got to break that box formation to open doors and stuff like that. And he produced a blade and he attacked these two members of staff. Was uh, he cuffed or anything? No, no. So that's when, again, an, an additional security procedure that you can put in place. Um, some some prisoners used to have to be unlocked with shields. So you couldn't move them anywhere without shields or handcuffs. But this guy hadn't... He'd, he was obviously deemed a high risk, but not high enough risk to be handcuffed. And he was coming out the back, uh, coming out of the shower. It was in the evening. And he had a blade hidden in his towel and he just literally it went like like lightning and he slashed two members of staff really seriously 
he slashed one member of staff and he was only a young member of staff and I, th I believe both staff were out of the job now because of what happened to them so he slashed the back of his neck basically from ear to ear oh, wow. and they said he was like literally millimeters away from hitting but his head just it was just oh. like a deep split it was almost like his head could fall off you was, can cut someone's yeah, face off by yeah it was head. it was just all yeah, across oh. the back of his neck the other guy had got slashed on the back um i think he got slashed in other places but it's this younger guy that that took the brunt of it mm. and it was just horrific it was probably the worst injury i've ever seen because it went down to like you could see all the layers of fat you could see the ligaments and stuff like that um god bless both of them they they continue they restrained him despite being really severely injured both mm. of them they managed to restrain the guy and then staff came on and, and sort of helped out but if you can imagine you're on an ssu so you're a unit within a unit within a unit there's so many gates and doors that you have to get through. So I talked about in part one about the charge of the light brigade. Mm. So we knew that if a bell went on the SSU, that the shit has gone down, but you still got to get through 20 gates and locks. And a lot of them had electronic locking as well. So you could only open them through a control room. So you'd press the button and you'd have to wait for someone to buzz you through. And, you know, when you know that the staff on the other side of the gate that are literally, you think they're dying, that you literally think they're dying. Um, and watching that video, seeing the injuries after was just, seeing the effect on the staff was just harrowing. And like I say, um, both had PTSD, both, you know, because they, they could have died. They, they, this guy had the absolute intention of killing both of them without a shadow of a doubt and it's only for the grace of god or whatever you, you want to believe in that they weren't they weren't dead was what he, was he in for i was gonna say that yeah double murder so he was never getting out no so he had nothing to lose exactly yeah yeah so it was um i believe it was double murder i'm sh i'm sure it was unless someone in in the comments wants to correct me but yeah it was just it was the worst the worst assault i've ever seen and, and just knowing how close and i think that's what hit both of them is how close it was to it going seriously you know well, it was serious. One, one centimeter to the side but i mean fortunately like I say there were no major arteries or or veins or anything caught but so where would he be moved to the cage with Maudsley ne next to him that's the kind of place where they go to yeah <laughs> I mean uh, is that even more secure than SSU then the, the ca these cages I've never been I've never actually been there but from what I've I mean it I, I believe it's a similar level of security so you still have the amount of gates and doors and, and locks and no access to sunlight and things like and things like that um but yeah, he, he, he was moved on pretty much straight away. You, and sometimes that's all you can do with these people. Did not go through the court system as well? I can't remember if he, I think he did go through the court system. Sometimes with assaults on staff, but if they're doing long sentences, they don't think it's in the public interest to pursue a, a prosecution. So if it's a low level assault, like a smack or something from a lifer, What's the point in giving a life for six months for the amount that it costs to put them through court, etc., etc.? So they don't bother. But I do believe that he he did go to court. I'm not sure what the outcome was. 
But yeah, with these people that are so dangerous, so violent, literally all you can do is just move them, disrupt them, move them from place to place. We used to call it a 28-day lie-down. So they go do 28 days of Wakefield, then come to Manchester. Do, and it was literally just to give the staff a break because you're sort of in fight or flight all the time when you're dealing with these people. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was pretty gruesome. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. So they were the most dangerous ones then. So who were the biggest names in the cat, eh? So whilst I was working there, um, it was it was Dale Cregan. And um, prior to that, there was a guy called Kieran Stapleton who had murdered the Indian student, I think on Boxing Day, um, with the teardrop tattoo. So he had been all over the news. So he was like the first one I kind of came into contact with. And then I remember, I remember, because I wasn't, so when you were duty governor, you would have contact with the cates, you would work on the segregation unit where the high risk cates were. So you were in daily contact with them, you knew the rules, you knew the procedures, but I, I wasn't, I didn't have any sort of strategic or managerial responsibility for them um, until I, got a new role. So I was put in charge of safe custody. So that's um, suicide and self-harm prevention and uh, violence reduction. So in a place where violence is rife, suicide was rife, you know, really there'd been a, 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 a you know, big spate of, of suicides there um, and violence was high, self-harm was high. So it was a really high profile position to be put in. And they put me in it and I was quite happy with that. You know, it's quite my, my bag, my sort of with my experience from style and everything like that. And sort of my mental health training and my background in psychology. It was a really good fit and it was a really good team and I was happy to be there. Um, so occasionally dealt with the cates, but nothing really major, just your day to day stuff, you, you know, checking on welfare and, and things like that. So in the news, obviously, there'd been um, Dale Cregan. So Dale Cregan, I'm sure... For the American viewers then, because yeah. they wouldn't be familiar. Do you want to give the whole story? Yeah, so... And I'll give the story that with the bits that the police filled in for me as well, because I had quite a bit of dealings with the, the police during that time as well. So Dale Cregan was a Manchester 
gangster, a bit of a, a, a drug runner, was into his guns. Um, and in Manchester, there are a number of high-profile gangs which try and control the drug supply in and out of the city, basically. Northside, Gooch, Salford. Yeah, Droylston, around, you know, all around there. Um, I mean, in the 90s, Manchester was called Gunchester. Because, really? Yeah, because of the sheer amount of guns. There was, you know, um, the Pitbull gang were a massive gang in Manchester that were, were eventually, I think there was 20 of them, uh, and eventually I think nine of them got, you know, life sentences. So it's, you know, it was... Manchester is renowned as a sort of, or it was at the time, as a sort of uh, area with heavy gang influence. So there are two two gangs in Manchester on this particular patch that had uh, been at war previously, going back a few years, had been at war previously, uh, but had made peace. So the heads of both families, and it did tend to be a family-run thing, uh, family run from the top and then you had your little runners underneath. Uh, Dale Cregan was more of an enforcer. So Dale Cregan was with one side and there was this other gang. So what the police told me, what kicked all of this off, this whole story that you're going to hear. So the police told me that one day there's one gang that drink in this prison. It was a Maybank holiday. There's one gang that drink in this prison. And that, that was their drinking this prison, drinking this pub. <laughs> so that, <laughs> no, one, no one drinks in prison. Um, that, that was their pub. That's where they drank. And there was enough peace between both gangs that the other gang could come in and have a drink. But that it was, you know, just a bit arm's distance. So apparently the other gang came in and started... Um, I don't know whether it was touching up some of the women or trying to crack on to some of the women. So it just exploded from there, like and a literal explosion. So it, gang warfare was reignited over it. Which two gangs was this one? Uh, I don't know the name. Paul Massey involved in this? No, no. no. Uh, the only I don't know the name of the one that Dale Cregan was in, but the short family with the the, the family that was sort of involved in the, in the other side of it. So it was the Short family who were in the pub at the time, and it was their side of things. And uh, some of Dale Cregan's mob had come in, started making sexually inappropriate comments to some of the women. And so that's how this whole chain of events. Now, this is just what the police are telling me. There could be more behind it. There could be, you know. Um, so Dale Cregan being the hard enforcer that he was and he was renowned he had you know reputation for violence he had one eye um and he had a black false eye so the rumor was that he'd lost it in a, a knife fight in thailand we don't know if that's true or not um but he did he used to go to thailand quite a lot and used to sort of uh, i know he enjoyed um firing the gun you know you can go on gun ranges in thailand and fire ak-47s and things like that so he was an enforcer and he um, shot, uh, I think he, sorry, I think he bombed the house of the dad, the short dad, uh, with hand grenades and then went back and killed him and then shot the son yeah. at, at a later date in, in a pub. I think it was in a pub. So two heads of the family, dad and son, gone. One been hand grenaded, one been shot. 
Now, to, to some people living in America, that might not sound like a, a big thing, but Manchester's a small city and it's, you know, it, it's quite that sort of level of violence is, is quite unheard of, particularly the use of explosives. So Dale Cregan went on the run and there was this huge manhunt. And I mean, absolutely huge. Everything in Manchester shut down. All the resources were directed to finding this guy because he is dangerous. You know, his face was plastered all over the news. Like I say, this iconic picture with the, with the false black eye. Um, the next part of this is, is absolutely horrendous. And I know it, it sort of really sort of affected staff at Manchester because they knew one of the victim's fathers. He used to work at Manchester. So you said the Dale Cregan story gets more horrific. Yes. Um, so after the, um, the incident with the Shaw family, Manchester police threw all their resources, all their time, all their officers into tracking this man down. He was considered highly dangerous. He was gang affiliated. So the concern was that this was going to escalate into another full on drugs territory gang war in Manchester. So what this guy did is he had been holed up in an abandoned house, um, completely under the radar. Um, they believe now that he, he was being assisted by people and he certainly had co-defendants when he went to court. He made a phone call one day to the um, police um, and he made it to not 999 because 999 the emergency number would have elicited probably a more rapid response he dialed 101 and, and said he believed that someone was breaking into this house this house that he was living in um, in the house he had a stash of weapons and now it is known that he did not expect two young female police officers to turn up. However, unfortunately, two young female police officers turned up to investigate. So any loss of life is horrendous, but it was tragic. These girls were young in age, young in service, and I think it was the fact that they were both women. I think that was the shock factor. So he threw grenades at them and opened fire on them and the effects, the injuries on these women were absolutely catastrophic, devastating and they both died at the scene. Um, not so long after that he walked into a police station and he handed himself in. Hold on, slow down a minute then. This is just mind-blowing why why so there was a massive manhunt for him and he just like snapped and thought i'm going to kill some police today and turn myself in i mean what so, it just sounds like madness so the the belief is that he went into the uh police station um saying you harassed my family now i've harassed yours so it was purely a retaliatory act. Gotcha. So that if was there was a manhunt for him, did they not have his address on record? He, he wouldn't, yeah, but he, this is the thing, they banged down every door in Manchester, every associate, so basically what the police had done is turned over everything. Everyone he knew, every property that he'd been associated with, every vehicle that he'd ever been associated with, they had thrown everything at it. 
um, to find him. And basically, because they knew it was him that had committed the other offences, so so um, they were obviously onto his family, harassing his, his mum. Well, they say harassing, but probably just trying to, you know, get the information that they needed. And it was, like I say, pure retaliation of the, the highest order. Now, whether he thought, I never got to the bottom of this, but whether he thought, well, I'm going to get caught and go down eventually anyway, so I may as well... Take a, take a couple of them with me, yeah. Mm. Um, but why turn yourself in? As, as I said, I think purely because I think he was aware he couldn't go on the run forever. He his face was everywhere. Um, and he like fled overseas. It seems like he was connected to Thailand or something. He was, but I think there was also fear around the safety of his family as well. So I know that when he came into prison, there was a really serious threat that was made against his partner and his son. So basically the other gang had threatened to kidnap his son, uh, rape him and torture him and yeah, do hideous things to him. So I think that kind of played a factor into it as well. Take himself out of the equation, saying that the, the guy's a psychopath. So it, you know, whether there was any genuine conscience there about protecting his family, I don't know, but he handed himself in, um, admitted what he did to the policewomen, was very, you know, very, very open about what he did to the policewomen, but completely denied the previous two offences, so the bombing and the shooting. Completely denied those, but admitted the offences against the... So it was really, really crazy. So that's what sent him down, was the offences yeah. against the women, not yeah. the other stuff. Because they didn't, at the time, have enough intelligence. They... They knew it was him, but when I say intelligence, so they, sorry, they had enough intelligence, but they didn't have enough evidence. Mm. So that was the, the evidence that was what they were after. So what's your reception going to be like at the cop shop then, if you've killed cops? I mean, isn't he going to be... Well, you would expect it would it to be quite bad. Ameri in America, he's going to be taken on a drive... And he's gonna. They're gonna say he tried to escape, and they're just gonna shoot him in the head. Yeah. Yeah. I think had we have had English police had access to firearms, and that be something quite regular. It, if it was back in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me, but the problem is because everything's on body worn camera now. Everything's on CCTV, so you have to. What they didn't want to do is, and what we didn't want to do was risk not getting a conviction so if you know that this guy's done this to your colleagues to you know your friends and as much as you hate him as much as you want to kill him you've got to get him to court he's got to serve his time and you cannot jeopardize that by putting a finger on him even if you wanted to so they... was that part of your duty or was that before your time the court proceedings the tra transportation all that stuff it was all around the same time so as soon as he <coughs> handed himself into the police station he came straight to manchester and so I, where you was and oh. i was the welcoming party no. <laughs> i was the welcome so did you have to give the staff strict instructions well i was given strict instructions let's put it like that so he um the word was he'd been captured we knew he'd be coming to us that was the, the logical place for him to come uh, due to his court appearances, and I'll, and I'll talk about his court appearances later on. Uh, I got called in by um, my boss, my big, 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 big boss, 
And because the role that I was in, so if you think self-harm, suicide prevention, violence reduction, he kind of hit a risk of all those three things. So for starters, there was a, a, a high risk of violence towards him and a high risk of violence from him towards others. There was a, they believed he was a risk of suicide because he had nothing to lose. So they believed that he was a risk of suicide and self-harm, we had no idea. He was an unknown, you know, unknown person in that respect. So I got called into the office. I got given the nod that he was going to be in within half an hour and that I was going to be called what is what is called his case manager. So pressure straight away. So that means I had to manage ri that risk whilst he was in custody. So mm. my job, my sole job was to keep him alive and to get him to, to court. And how did you feel about that? Part excited part daunted, part pressure, you know, the responsibility. I was, I was intrigued to, to meet this person, to see the, this person that had been all over the news. I was intrigued to meet him. Um, I was, I was nervous because obviously of the offence that he committed, I'm thinking, what's his attitude to women? How is he going to respond to me? You know, a woman in authority, he's already killed two women in positions of authority. What, you know, what, you know, I had no idea at all how he was going to present in prison. All I knew that outside of prison, he was a bad man. So my boss gave me this information and basically said, this is on you now. <laughs> so I'm like, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure. So it came in. And he came straight into the segregation unit. He came in as a high-risk cate, so he's the highest of the high. That means, so when you're a high-risk cate in prison, that means you have the means, the wherewithal, the ability, the support from outside, the money, the connections to escape, and you are an extreme danger to the public. So you, you're literally, the, as I call them, the worst of the worst. So he arrives in the segregation unit and um, he goes through some sort of check-in procedures, some reception procedures, and I have to interview him. I'm the first person that has to interview him and sort of get a measure of the man, okay? So I'm managing this document that he's on, so we have like a sort of monitoring document. All our information, all our safety information, risk information goes in this document, and I and the author, the manager, the everything of this document. So I have to do quite a lengthy interview with him. So it made me laugh because we've had prisoners come in before and I've had the same role and there'd be about five people in the room. Today, there was like 30 odd people in the room. So the pressure's on, not only on me, because I'm in front of psychiatrists, prison officers, other managers, any, any the world and his wife anyone who thought they could have one small connection to what was going on said oh i need to be in the meeting <laughs> so i'm kind of like right okay let's go let's do this so we sat down and again i sort of had in my mind the mantra that you know i'm not there to punish him i need to get him to court that's my only job and if that means being pleasant to him being nice to him you know keeping him alive giving him you know his basic needs i will do what i need to do so imagine a really long uh, table so like a conference table 
So I'm sat at one end and he's sat at the other. So I've got 20 million staff either side. So there's no way that he could have got to me, even if he wanted to. So in walks this guy that I've seen all over the news and he's got the black eye, the shaved hair, and he looks pretty ripped. You can see like muscles underneath the t-shirts, the, the everything. So he looks like a pretty damn scary guy. So he sits, sits down and I introduced myself and I said, I'm Governor Daglish, I'm going to be a case manager. I need to ask you a series of questions now. I need you to be open and honest with me. And I'm just going, trying to be professional and go through. And everyone's just like that, eyes everywhere. And he did not give a flying fuck. He just sat there like he was having his, a picnic. He did not give a hoot. He wasn't disrespectful. He was just, and I was like, thinking he might be shocked at being in prison. I kept saying, are you okay? Have you got any thoughts of suicide or stuff? And I was like, no, absolutely fine. Nothing, nothing. Have you got any previous, you know, mental health concerns? No, absolutely nothing. No, I'm absolutely fine. Shrugging the shoulders, smiling. No, you know, abs absolutely like a normal conversation with a normal person, except this man has killed four people and, you know, he's the most wanted man in Britain and the most dangerous man in Britain. And it was like I was talking to my neighbour. <laughs> it was so bizarre, so, so bizarre. Um, so I asked him about his safety. Do you have any concerns about your safety? No. Do you have any concerns about how you might respond to other people? No. I said, have you got any concerns about anything? <laughs> and he went, yeah, I'm a little bit worried about my, what, uh, my partner and my son. And I'd already been briefed that there was sort of a bit of a risk. And I said, right, okay, so tell me a bit more about that. And he said, I believe they've gone into a safe house because uh, the risk to them was considered really significant from this other gang. Um, so they gone into this safe house and I said, well, we, we will do what we can to facilitate any contact. Obviously I'll, I'll need to go through the police and maybe do it like that. But obviously if that's your only concern, we'll, we'll try and work with you. I said, um, you, you're on this document because of our, our concerns about you. Don't need to be on it. You don't need to see me. And I said, however, I need to make sure I said, I still need to see you because he was so high profile in a situation normally like that. I would delegate the task to someone else, but because he was so, you know, so serious, I had to do all his interviews and every interview was the same. What was the same, blasé? Blasé, no, couldn't give a hoot, couldn't, you know, had no concept of what he'd done, never talked about his offences to me. So then, so I'm still managing him. The police are swarming through Manchester prison because not only has he been arrested, but uh, about eight or nine other gang members have been arrested with him. From his side? From his side. So the, the, the main aim is to build this case around the bombing and the shooting of the, the short dad and son. Because they've got the evidence for the women, they're not bothered about that. Not that they're not bothered, they've got that, they've nailed it. They, but they want the evidence for this because they want this guy to go away for, you know, a whole natural life. So the CID were interviewing everyone that had had any contact with the gang members. What are they saying? How are they interacting? What's happening in phone calls? What's happening in mail? Because they're trying to build this case. So they came to me and they said, we believe you're his case manager. And I said, yeah, I am. And they said, um, 
can we look through your documents? So I gave them my document and they said, has he mentioned anything about anything? And I said, the only thing he has said is that, and this was the only thing he said, is that he was um, sorry that it was two women that he killed, but he wasn't sorry that it was police officers. But they were pushing for the, the, the short guys. And I said, he hasn't mentioned anything. And they were like, that's the information that we need. Can you try and guess what I'm like? More pressure, you know? <laughs> and they said, if you do get any information, would you be prepared to go to court? And I'm like, wait a second. Everyone that's involved with this case is either in witness protection or, you know, there's some sort of, these are serious gangland people. And I would potentially have to give evidence if I elicited any information from him. She said, oh, it's all right. We put police patrols outside your house and anti-petrol bomb stuff on your, on your front door. And I'm like, oh, that's all right then. <laughs> yeah. You know, really sort of, because when, uh, I'll talk a little bit now about when he went to court, armed police, snipers on the roofs, uh, bulletproof vests, every, you know, uh, you're talking when they're escorting down the East Lanks, which is a road near us, it's like the roads are blocked off. So that the category A prison van, they have a police escort, they have an armed escort, they are, it's like major. So, and they wanted little old Holly, potentially, <laughs> to go and turn up in the little suit and, and you know, give, give evidence. Fortunately, it never got that far. He didn't give me that information. But every time, every single time I spoke to him, there was, there was nothing, there was nothing there. His fellow gang members started to go on hunger strike. Um, I think they were terrified. I think they were located on the category A unit, whereas Dale was located on the segregation unit, which was a higher security. Um, I think they all started to shit themselves a little bit. So quite a number of them ended up on the healthcare unit. So to give some sort of context to that, the healthcare unit was again, a unit within a unit within a unit but where you could hold Cat A prisoners, but could also hold the mentally ill Cat A prisoners. So we used to have a visiting psychiatrist from Ashworth, and um, I think he just wanted to play with them myself. <laughs> so Dale Cregan and a number of his associates all suddenly got transferred to Ashworth Prison. So for, sorry, Ashworth Hospital. So again, for context, Ashworth Hospital is a high security hospital for the criminally insane. And it is where um, offenders can go for assessment pre-trial. So one of the things they did want to prove is that he wasn't mentally unwell. That, so I, I understand the sort of validity of sending him to make sure that he didn't get out of this charge because of mental illness. So they, a load of them went, some of them came back, some of them went again. So, cause we used to exchange with Ashworth Hospital quite a lot due to the nature of our population and how unwell they were. He came back a different man. So it's quite spooky. So he came back. Now, I, I, I am not a psychiatrist. I am only going off sort of lived experience. I'm going off my mental health training. I'm going off my psychology background. I'm going off what the other psychologists that worked with him said, who believed him to be a psychopath. So psychopaths, there's no amount of medication in the world that's going to treat a psychopath. However, and, it, and the thing is, 
He didn't display antisocial behaviour whilst he was in custody. So there was no fighting, no swearing, no, no problem with staff. So there was no reason to modify his behaviour in prison. So he goes to Ashworth Prison, he comes back. So remember this is the guy that sat in front of me, muscles and everything, comes back about five stone heavier, like a zombie. They'd medicated him up to the eyeballs. Now, whether they'd given him antipsychotics, so uh, quite a lot of mood stabilizers, and, uh, mood stabilizers and antipsychotics cause weight gain. He came back an absolute zombie and about five, six stone heavier. It was weird. It was just weird. Um, and I think people knew that and he wasn't the person that he was. He just turned into, like I say, a zombie. So they put him on the regular cat A unit then. And he was just he was just left then to sort of go on, go on through his natural uh, court processes. The only thing that I did find quite bizarre is, and one of the things that sort of I ended up dealing with, is that his solicitors had requested, so he had his black onyx eye, which was obviously super intimidating to people. And they requested prior to his trial that he have a more... Um, realistic false eye uh, placed in there so that he didn't look as intimidating to the jury when when he you know appeared in court so there was all this to and fro between Manchester Eye Hospital because you can't just have an eye popped in it needs to be you know fitted and coloured and it's not like a process you can do sort of like overnight uh, obviously there was also massive security concerns about taking him to a hospital really vulnerable when prisoners go out to hospital you haven't got the staff you haven't got the doors the gates and stuff like that um, <clears throat> so we did knock that back in the end and he did have to go to court with his black eye um, but yeah so from then he, he was he got his sentence that he was found guilty of all four murders in the end he never <clears throat> he never coughed to the the first two murders um all his his cronies also got significant sentences as well they'd either aided and abetted in, in one murder or helped harbor him or or you know given him weapons or whatever um so yeah that was my experience with the britain's most dangerous man oh, at the wow. time who <clears throat> you would walk past, had it not been for the black eye you'd walk past the street and say hello to you, you could sit on a bus next to him and you would never ever know you know you wouldn't you know, just from interacting with him. And that is, I think, is what I found more chilling mm. because you expect someone who's capable of that level of violence to be a bit more psychotic and a bit more, you know, in your face. It was that deadpan, nothing, nothing, I was going to say nothing behind the eyes, but it was nothing behind the <laughs> eye. Um, nothing, you know, nothing to, that would give us cause for concern behaviour-wise. It, I found it quite sad that, and I, this is not from a level of sympathy for him at all, um, what happened to him in Ashworth Prison. I think he should be treated for what he was, which was a psychopath. Um, he wasn't, in my opinion, never presented delusions or hallucinations, auditory, visual, whatever. Never, ever presented any symptoms that would indicate sort of psychosis. Mm. And yeah, he was medicated up and it was, yeah, you ha I, I think because of the notoriety of him, there were so many people wanting to work with him. There were so many people. It's like, I'm working with Dale Cregan. I was more shitting myself, to be honest with you. I was like, I was, 
I was less bothered about the notoriety. I was more bothered about, will I have to go to court? You know, I, I, I just wanted to do my job, keep him alive and then let it go kind of thing. But the pressure was immense personally. Uh, but like I say, there were other people that definitely enjoyed the, the sort of notoriety, like I say, of, of working with him. Um, it wasn't like that for me. It was like, shit, I don't want to lose my job and I don't want to go to court or have my house petrol bombed. That was the, the sort of the, the baseline. So what happened to him after court? So he got a, um, I believe he got a whole life sentence and he um, has, has disappeared into the ether of the Category A estate. Yeah, so... When you released him into the Cat A general population, how did the other prisoners interact with him? <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, we, we thought this would be a real issue because we thought there's going to be some... Rivals and stuff. Yeah, yeah. potential rivals. There's also going to be some that... Because the, the word was, because what we were doing is when he came into prison, we were then monitoring the intelligence on the, the category A wing. Because obviously we were listening for any rumbles, any rumours of, of anything that was going to happen to him. And there, there were a couple of rumbles about they weren't happy that it, they didn't like no one liked the police, but they weren't happy it was women. So there was a couple of rumbles of that. There was a couple of rumbles of, yes, this could be a bit of uh, sort of this could cause some sort of gang problems uh, on the on the unit but he went on he was on the healthcare for a short time as well but once he went into what we call the general population for, for the category A's there weren't there weren't any issues there was always like little bits of intelligence say this is going to happen that's going to happen this person's going to get stabbed or that but it never did come to fruition there was there was never any incident so yeah it was this just a really bizarre time really you know really pressured really high stress um and was just glad re really that i mean everyone did a brilliant job in and i know the staff that were escorting them to um to court on a daily basis were terrified you know they had armed police there so you have armed police um and they put bulletproof vests on the staff, but the staff haven't got any means, of, you know, any means of protecting themselves. It's kind of like, I don't know how I'd feel about it. I'd feel really vulnerable in that position. So I know that sort of that, that affected the staff as well quite a lot, but I was just relieved when the whole thing is over, um, was over, sorry. And, and like I said, just a very surreal experience dealing with, you know, going for one day, seeing this guy all over the news, to the next day meeting him in person. Is it the case that, you know, like earlier on you said, the CID were all over everybody trying to get information? Yeah. Would they ever put like an undercover person as a prisoner to talk to him or employ prisoners to talk to him to try and get information? No, not, not in a case like that. Again, because I think that the risk of, of um, it, it spoiling the conviction would be too great. I think, um, particularly prisoner evidence is and and also what you have to remember when that when they're at that level of security a snitch or someone you know working for the police would just be they'd be dead that you know they wouldn't survive so and I, and I don't think many people wanted to help you know when you're at that sort of level you don't want to help the police in terms of undercover it has happened previously years ago where undercover officer has been implanted but again, what you're talking is Manchester, small city. Everyone knows each other. 
Um, a lot of the category prisoners are in single cells, you know, not as much opportunity to sort of interact with each other. Um, and I think the risk would just be, they'd, they'd get sniffed out a mile away and the risk to them would be, would be too great. Um, I, I guess I, I have heard of it happen in America, for example, but I think there's more, you know, there's more of a population to pick from. But like I say, Manchester, everyone knows everyone. <laughs> so have you dealt with any other high profile cases? Yeah, so I think straight off the back of Dale Cregan was probably like the most harrowing case I've ever, ever dealt with. And it's one, even to this day, and I know this is going to sound probably a bit sick or twisted, is, you know, I watched the documentary. He's quite often in documentaries. There have been a lot of documentaries about him. And I watched them, and I don't watch... And it's almost like, almost like scratching a wound. It's like, it's something that will never leave me. And it's something that I can't let go. Um, so there was a guy called Mark Bridger, um, high profile, well, he was a high profile prisoner. So he, the background with Mark is that he um, was living in Wales, living in a, a small town. I've been there myself called McConcliffe, lovely part of Wales. Sorry, McClump. McConcliffe. <laughs> yeah. Um, really beautiful part of Wales. Um, and there was, um, he was known in the area, um, never known for offence, never known as offences against children. He had six children himself by different women that lived in the village. He had had girlfriends, um, no history of offending, none, okay? So th th this guy is under the radar. So this one evening, there's a little girl called April Jones who's playing on an estate. So their family live on an estate and there's a green and she's playing there with her friends and April has cerebral palsy. So she struggles to walk, but she can ride a bike. So her bike is like a lifeline. Her bike is how she's gonna get everywhere. Um, I think it comes to about seven o'clock. I mean, she's five years old, it comes to about seven o'clock and her mum goes to look for her, can't find, doesn't find her. Finds a bike, doesn't find her. So they know something's wrong straight away. Cause she, this, this kid goes around on this bike all the time. And there is a, a, a child witness uh, who's seven years old, who later on the defense tried to discredit but this child witness was fantastic. And this child witness said, no, April's gone off in a car with, with a man. So they knew straight away that it was an abduction. Knew, 100% abduction. So then launches one of the biggest um, searches for, for a missing person. I think, that, I think it's the biggest one that Wales has ever seen. It might even <coughs> be uh, one of the biggest ones in the UK. Sort of like, I think most forces within the south if it, the south and the midlands were deployed to help and they literally had thousands of people out there searching so again for people who don't know what wales like wales is very rugged it's mountainous it's forests it's rivers it's lakes it's you know it's quite rough terrain and it was um the, the weather wasn't great at the time so it was it'd been heavy rain so it's making di searching difficult so they are searching everywhere for this little girl and 
she's nowhere to be found absolutely and this is going on for days and days and and they know don't they that if you haven't you know as time goes on the 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 likelihood of you finding a child goes down so this child witness this star this one that saved the day she said she saw april get into the driver's side of a four by four vehicle so in england we drive on the right so to get into the driver's side as a passenger would be really unusual. So the police had this to work on. So they thought, right, maybe it's a left-hand drive. So they, they got a description of the vehicle and they obviously knew that it was a left-hand drive. And a certain gentleman, Mark Bridger, had taken his 4x4 left-hand drive vehicle into a workshop to have some work done. And it escalated from there so eventually he gets arrested and these are why what was the evidence the the, the car the thing so they had enough to that was enough to bring him in to to question him now he did know april his kids had his kids some of his kids were at the same school as april so he was not unknown to her um one of the issues is that i've talked about previously is that Previous offences obviously quite often dictate current offences. So a background check's done on this guy. Nothing. So it's bizarre, you know, it was just bizarre. So he adamantly denies everything. This is to the police. Adamantly, adamantly, adamantly. Um, and then stuff happened with the police and evidence which wasn't released to the public so that it wouldn't jeopardise the conviction. He ends up in prison so he comes to us but he's coming on to our healthcare because he's classed as vulnerable because he's already stated he feels suicidal he feels like he's at risk of self-harm he's definitely at risk from other prisoners but not likely to a risk to other people so he ticks all the boxes for me to manage him so once again i got Wonderful. called into the big 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 boss's oh. office and this time I was told if you if because he was really considered high risk of suicide they said if he kills himself you're going to lose your job that was literally the line that was given to me so I'm like Jesus Christ what the hell and I was really concerned because he was like I say at risk from other people because of what he was being suspected of and at the time he wasn't suspected of murder he was suspected of kidnapping but the story will progress so he comes into prison and um who does he meet the first person that he meets is me <laughs> obviously the welcoming party for the the sad the mad and the bad <laughs> so i bring him into the healthcare office you see people weren't as interested in him because he was only a missing girl they weren't as interested so it was me and a couple of staff and i'll probably get <clears throat> horrible comments for this but i've got to state it as it is what a charming good looking intelligent articulate lovely person you would meet so i'm going through all my questions with him and he's he looks genuinely distraught genuinely so that was the first meeting so because he was so high profile so high risk i met with him every day every single day so every single day there'd be tears, he'd be crying, 
and he kind of started to pull on our heartstrings a little bit. And I remember one day he went out and we had a conversation, this was early on, and we had a conversation and someone said, one of the psychiatric nurses said, I'm not sure if he's guilty, you know. And I said, do you know what? I'm not sure if he's guilty. He comes across as so... And I thought I... Seen it all, done it all, worn the T-shirt. No one pulled the wool over my eyes. But he was so convincing, so emotional, so passionate. So, you know, um, I wish I could I wish I wish could help the police. I wish there was something I could tell them or, you know, some way, you know. And we were kind of like, oh, God, maybe, maybe. that Because he didn't have any prior offences, maybe. They've got the wrong man. They've got the wrong man. And then the days went on and we started to open our eyes a little bit to the crocodile tears. Well, he did a classic Amber Heard. He was the <laughs> classic. The face was screwed up. The, the pleading, the wringing of the hands, the, all the rest of it. Not one fucking tear dropped out of his eye. Not one. Wow. Excuse my language swearing. You know I swear a bit. But not one tear dropped from his eye. And we started to see through the bullshit. Because was he crying at first? Well, now I look back on it. No, no. <laughs> we were just falling for the, the face ring and, 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 oh. and he'd get red eyes and all the rest of it. And we'd always be handing him tissues. So we didn't see, I just didn't see through it. And then, like I say, the more time we spent with him, but he used to tell us these fantastical stories or not fantastical stories, but like stuff that we thought was a bit of a Walter Mitty. We thought he spoke out of his ass and told lies. But we used to check with the police and they'd go, no, no, he did used to be a butcher, which we worried about. No, he did, he did used to be a fireman. He did used to be a lifeguard. He is a, an expert woodchopper or a woodcarver. Yes, he has travelled all around the world. So, so all the stories that he was telling it, because we just think he's full of shit. But it, it was all, all that side was true. <laughs> Then it started like started to concern me because I said, "Oh, you've travelled, have you?" Because I was thinking, I can't marry up someone who's never committed an offence to someone who goes straight to kidnapping and potentially murdering a child. It just doesn't happen. There's usually a middle ground before. There's an escalation. There's yeah. always an escalation. It just doesn't happen. So we started to question him a little bit, and my personal opinion is based on what he told me that he had travelled to countries like India, Vietnam places, Thailand places like that. And I do do believe that he'd abused children, as did other members of the team, that he'd abused children in those countries, which is why he'd never been convicted of that sort of... He'd done it out of the spotlight of the UK, so to speak. So the story progresses where he now comes up, he's thinking, shit, uh, you know, that they're going to find some evidence. They're going to find some evidence. So he now comes up with this this bullshit story that um, he was pissed. He'd had lots of lots of alcohol. He knocked April over on her bike, thought he'd killed her or had killed her, put her into his car, and then he was so blind drunk that he drove off into the mountains and he doesn't remember a single thing about it. He might have started a fire. That's what that's what he said. So his defence was. He'd killed her under the influence of alcohol. She was unconscious in his car. He's then obviously must have, but doesn't remember disposing of her body. Can't tell the police. So obviously 
as with Dale Creek and we were in contact with the police, the police said, and, and one of the sort of things was try and find the location of a body. Try and find, you know, get some closure, justice for the family. Try and find the location of the body. So even though we didn't believe him, we had to go along with this bullshit story that he had accidentally killed her. Even though there was no evidence of the pink bike on the front of the, the car, her bike had been found with no damage to it. There was nothing, absolutely nothing. So um, we go along with this bullshit story and it started to get wear a little bit thin when he'd come in in the morning and say, April's come to me in a dream. Oh no. And I'm sat there and I'm like, I want to strangle, I, I, I literally want to hold a knife to your throat and, and get you to tell me where that child's body is and tell us what you really did. I keep dreaming about her. She's reaching out to me. She's trying to tell me where she is. And, and, and like, we sat around, because by this time we've worked her out. You're a psychopath, mate. You're charming, but you're superficial. You, you glib, you're all these things that we didn't see for the first few weeks. And I, it was horrible, because you're there, and because he, he's still giving it, oh, I still feel like I'm going to kill myself. And, oh, I can't stand her. The fact that I can't remember, and I'm trying to remember, and... And I'm just like, I, I can't bear this. I cannot bear it because it, it, it was painful because I had a son and, you know, he was young. And I'm thinking, all I'm thinking about is that, that family. All I'm thinking about is there's this creature sat in front of me who knows the truth, who's full-blown psychopath, who knows the truth that he's not telling us. Still at risk of suicide. So I'm like, right, we had an agreement with his solicitors. So this was quite unheard of. So this was quite radical on a sort of our part. So me and my team did this. And bearing in mind, I had a small team working with me because you couldn't have like large amounts of information being disseminated between, you know, people can't keep the mouth shut. And when you're dealing with something that's in the court process, it has to be kept locked down, so to speak. So... I had a small team and we made an agreement with his solicitors that any evidence that came out that the police were going to challenge him with, they would tell us first because that would escalate his risk. So when he met with his solicitor and say his solicitor said, yeah, we found a body in your DNA all over it, his risk of suicide is going to shoot up, isn't it? So we had an agreement that before they told him anything, they would tell us everything so that we could manage the risk when he came back. So we were prepared. So even if that meant putting him in like a cell with a perspex door on it, whether he needed extra staff to watch him 24 hours a day, whatever we needed to do to keep him alive. Because you can imagine if you're confronted with evidence that's going to put you away for life, you're going to, you know, you're going to think, well, what's the point in living? So there were two, two incidents very very specifically and it's so weird that i'm i've got i mean it may not sound like it i've got a great memory for things in the prison service but everything else is, is dire <laughs> but i remember i remember the date i remember the day i remember where i was and when i was managing my team on the rare days off that i had i always said to them so they would sort of oversee him in my absence but generally it'd be me that saw him every single day but they would oversee him in my absence they had my mobile phone number because I said, if you need advice, if you need me to sign something off, if you if you need anything, call me. 
no matter what time, no matter, you know, if it's in the middle of the night, there's my number, call me. So I was in Debenhams with my mum Christmas shopping and uh, I take a phone call and it's um, an officer I work with, very, very, very good friend of mine, very fantastic officer. A bit like a bit, an empath, compassion, just really fantastic at a job. Um, fantastic at looking after me as well during this time. And she said, I've got something to say. So I'm in the queue at Bloody Debenhams with all my Christmas shopping. And my mum's like, what, what? And my mum's a gossip bag, right? I can't tell my mum anything because it'll be on Facebook before you know it. <laughs> so, you know, I was having, she was always quizzing me. And I'm like, mum, these are high risk category A prisoners. Can't tell you anything. Don't ask. So I said, I've just got, I'll just take this call, mum. So I just stepped out the line and she said, they found bones in his house. Oh. And my heart just sank. It absolutely, and I felt, phys just even thinking about it now, I feel physically sick. So I feel physically sick at this point, because I'm like, I've, I've been listening to this guy's bullshit for months, and they found bones in his house. But it gets worse. So oh. further evidence that came to like blood spatter, child pornography on his computer, the worst one, the one that I will never, ever, ever, ever forget, he alleged that she was unconscious when he got her in the car. On the inside of the passenger, on the passenger window that she was in, were little handprints. Mm. Which tells me she was conscious, she was trying to get out. Mm. And we believe, this is now what we believe, I mean, some of the pornography that they found on his computer was sort of bad torture child stuff. Um, we believe that due to the blood evidence and everything that she was murdered in the house. The bones were not sufficient to, I mean, the, we knew that they were human bones, that the evidence didn't quite get there to say that they were the, they were her bones. It was, it was sort of, I, the, I don't know how the sort of forensics of it work, but it, it was enough to put in evidence, but not enough to say it was her, if that makes Sorry, sense. where were the bones found? In like a fire pit, uh, like um, a log burner. And there was blood in the bathroom. So they think that she was um, killed, obviously dismembered, and then bones been taken away. Because I know for a long time they were searching the rivers because there'd been so much rain recently overflowing of rivers they'd search like tributaries like going into the sea and and stuff like that and and it looks like she never left the house that he took her home and never left the house um the fact is there wasn't a body to bury i do believe the family took the, the, those those few ashes the, the the like the tiny 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 like bone fragment remains that they had and and did a, a burial with that um, but for me, he was just a monster. Once the evidence was found, then how could he continue his charade? Did he did he change completely, or did no. he continue his? He continued his charade. Did he? Wow. This, they this is what they do. Like these compulsive liars, narcissists, psychopaths. They either don't care that they're completely lying to you, or they believe their own lies. They tell themselves a narrative because that's more tolerable. For their mental state. For their mental state. Mm. Um, but 
Oh God, yeah. He 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 was vile. He was just and and like say to to them, you know, say to us, she's come to me in a dream trying to tell me where she is. Fuck off. There's there's a cell. Go away. Don't ever 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 step foot out of it. It it. And do you know what? That. The sad thing is, and I'm going to talk about the impact on staff now, because the sad thing is, if you work in a clinical setting, if you are a psychiatric nurse, if you are a mental health worker, if you are a psychologist, you get uh, something called supervision. So it's what we would class as counselling, really. So if you're dealing with a really complex, difficult, heart-wrenching, mentally draining case, like Mark Bridger, you would be then given all this support to deal with that. So you then go and speak to someone above you who will say, you know, that you can bounce off basically and just say, you know, this is how I'm feeling. As a prison officer, as a governor, even though we worked with this man on a daily basis, we got nothing. We didn't even have a debrief. I was gonna ask how, how you felt when you went home at night. Horrible. Seeing your child. Horrible, just awful. Just, just, I feel sick now talking about it. We sat in the office. Uh, I can't remember if there were, there were guys working in the office at the time. Not that it matters because the guys were, the guys that did work for me were, were equally as upset but not willing to show their emotions, I guess, as much as we were. I mean, we sat and, I mean, I was a governor, sat with prison officers and we're crying and hugging each other because we just, that's all we had. We only had each other. At no point did senior management sit down with me and say, how are you doing? It was like, this is your job to do, you get on, you do it. But the emotional, physical toll, the, 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 the draining, the being on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week to keep this bastard alive, to get him to court. And then he literally went to court one day and he, he never came back. Do you know where he went? I don't know which. I think he might have gone to Wakefield. Munster Mansion. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it was just like you've gone from this daily contact, everything. You, you, you're in each other's faces. You, you're in this emotional maelstrom. And then you are just cut adrift. No support. No psychological support. No nothing. No just each other basically to, to talk about and to talk with. And like I say, fortunately, I worked with an amazing team. We were all really, it wasn't like I'm the governor and they're the staff. We, were, we, were, we worked together as a unit. It wasn't like, I wasn't afraid to cry in front of them. They would cry in front of me. And they're, you know, that's who we got the support from. Um, and we still talked about it, you know, years after, you know, it's still it's still a case that resonates with those of us that worked with him, um, just heartbreaking, just absolutely. And like I say, even now, and like I say, I watched the documentaries and I, I watched one recently and it shows his police interviews and it just boom, brought it all back because he was just, I'm like, that's the man I met. That's the man I first met. That's the, this monster. And I can't express, I know I've said to you sometimes you can't rationalize the person with the, 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 with the behaviour, he truly was one person where you could not put the two together. He had raped, tortured, mm. murdered, dismembered, 
disposed of this young child. How did, how did they know the, the rape was involved? It's an assumption because of all the pornography that was found. Okay. It's it's very it's very unusual for someone to kidnap and just murder a child. It there is nine times out of ten that sexual element, and because of the the nature of the pornography that was found, it was assumed. So it you know it was a logical conclusion to make that he'd, he'd committed that offence, and you know sat in front of you, and you know to me he's the worst. I know I've called a lot of them the worst of the worst, but the fact that they never found the body, the fact that they never got the closure, the fact that he denied it, the fact, you know, all the evidence that came out. I'm just really feeling for the parents involved, like burying fragments of your child. I mean, I wouldn't even say fact, they were so insignificant, it wasn't enough for DNA. But they, they knew it was like human, I think the, the word was human in origin. That's all they could say. Did the prisoners ever try and attack him? He was kept locked down. Believe me, was not allowed anywhere near any other prisoners. Just the risk to him was too great. Risk to him was just too, too great. And he's never getting out natural life, is he? He's never getting out. Um, and it, it, yeah, and he d doesn't deserve to get out. I, I mean, no. I'm not... A death penalty, I mean, the death penalty is a whole, a whole different um, argument, probably for another podcast, but um, I, in cases like that where it's irrefutable, you know, the evidence is absolutely irrefutable, why are we keeping that man alive? A monster. Did anyone get any time off after that? No. No? Time, no. time off work? Oh, shit. Are you mad? <laughs> really? No. <laughs> Not a chance. Not a chance. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Earlier on, you said there was two slashings that we want to get to. Yeah. Oh, so wow. I talked about the staff one. Yeah. Oh God, this poor guy, and and I do feel for him because it it was my. So this guy gets slashed one night, and it was on a night where it was quite choppy. There was quite a few bits and bats going on. So of an evening time, we called it evening duty, um, you would not have as many staff on duty um, and you would certainly not have as many healthcare staff on duty. Uh, so you might only have like two or three nurses, but the nurses were very busy handing out medications. So bearing in mind, we're all trained in first aid, thank God. So this poor guy gets um, slashed and he has multiple slashes and I when mean, you see a poor guy who's this and how's it come about prisoner yeah. just it just petty petty argument on the wing nothing nothing no big beef no big issue just it's the kind of shit they did to each other for you know you nick my tobacco or a drug debt or you know something um so they slash this guy and he was being he, uh, fair enough he'd been slashed but he was being really dramatic <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am prone to a bit of drama and I love a bit of drama, but not when I'm trying to deal with someone. It's like, calm, you know, calm the fuck down, let's get this sorted. So his slashing was so bad. Um, for starters, we couldn't get a nurse to attend to him. So he had, his skull had been slashed, his face had been slashed. He's literally, he's like, it was gross. And I've said before, I don't like blood, don't like the smell of blood, don't like anything to do with blood, but if I have to, I'll deal with it. So we didn't have any nurses available, but we were like, I think 
it was we had already deemed that he'd have to go to hospital there was no way because he'd been assaulted so badly there's no way that anyone in the prison could patch him up with a bit of glue and a few staples or something so the decision was made but in the meantime he's pissing blood oh. everywhere so it's like but it wasn't enough to call an ambulance so we were gonna have to put him in the back of a taxi with a couple of staff so because we sometimes used to ring like for an ambulance they say i'll be there in like an hour it's manchester city center it's like oh, sorry but a taxi yeah what taxi driver's gonna pick one up oh wow you see that's why i patched him up you see this is this is like <laughs> so this is the thing so we're not going to call an ambulance it's manchester city center getting getting an ambulance is like finding rocking horse shit it's like you know you could be waiting for two hours someone could be having a heart attack and you'd be waiting for two hours for an ambulance so and he was bleeding quite badly and we knew he needed to go out like his face hanging off and his head hanging off and everything so it was like so we got him down to the reception area which is where you discharge prisoners and the staff were like i ain't going with him like that and i'm like to be fair i agree with you we need to do something no nurse around no nothing and like everyone's like who knows first aid and i was like oh, no one wanted to touch him i was like oh fuck's sake i'll do it so i strapped on some god knows what i was doing and I unwound these bandages and I can't describe what his head looked like after I'd finished with him. Do you look like Mr. Bump? Yeah, so basically. So I had to get his head, because I had to stop the bleeding somehow and, and clean him up enough to get in the back of the taxi to get to hospital to get it all done. But these bandages, I just kept going and going and going. He was even swearing at me. He's going, what the bloody hell are you doing to me? And I'm like, shut up, shut up, I'm sorting you out. I'm not definitely not a nurse. And I just remember, but the blood kept seeping through, so I just keep going and going and going around. And it's like this huge turban of bandage with just like a little eye poking out there. <laughs> and it's like, I covered his whole face. Like he had like eye patch and this, that. It was absolutely, and the staff were just like, you're absolutely off your head. And I was like, he's done the job though, hasn't he? He's not bleeding everywhere. Can... And I'm like, where's the nurse when you need, you know, where's the nurse? Cause they might've done a better job and patched him But I didn't know what else to do except strap a bandage on him so tightly that, you know, his head would fall off. And then, uh, cause, and then he was moaning saying, I look a right bloody tit now. I'm not going, I'm not going out dressed like, I'm not going out like that. So then the staff start arguing. They're saying, we don't have to go out at all if you don't want. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not unwinding that bandage. You staff are taking him out. You shut up. I don't care you look like a tit. I'm saving your face and your head now. Get out. But it's funny that <laughs> no one would touch him. I'm there like, right. We're just winding for about 10 minutes. And it was just this huge thing of soggy, bloody bandages. And he did look a knob, to be honest with you. But yeah, we got him out and we got him sorted. But yeah, I'm not renowned for my nursing skills, <laughs> let's say. And he did have a go at me when he got back. Did he? Yeah, he was he was pissed off I'd sent him out looking like a tit. What did he say? He said, you, you bloody made me look an idiot, didn't you? And I'm like, I saved your face, didn't I? <laughs> Might not have looked pretty, but I saved your face. But yeah. So how many years were you at Manchester? I did four years at Manchester. Did you bump into Neil Sandworth at Manchester? I always bumped into Neil <laughs> What? Yes, of course I did. So I met Neil, um, he was a healthcare officer. First of all, he was on K-Wing, 
and then he was a healthcare officer. And because of the nature of the prisoners that I specifically dealt with, a lot of them were located on healthcare. And we spent many, I mean, Sam can chat, I can chat, you can imagine, can't you? So quite often I'd just go on there to do some management checks for like five minutes and two hours later me and Sam were still there chewing the fat and, <laughs> and, and talking about putting the world to rights and stuff like that. But yeah, worked with Sam, always had a good um, connection with him, always had a good bond, always knew that he was a good member of staff coming from a good place with good morals um, and, you know, had that empathy for people with mental health, which is which is what you needed. Yeah, if the viewers want to watch his stories from that mental health unit, which are off the scale, he was one of the first prison officers we interviewed. So just go back and look at the Neil Samworth podcast. He's also got his own YouTube channel. And he's got his own channel yeah, now as well. It's called Real Porridge. So yeah. Um, but yeah, so me and Sam often, often dealt with incidents. So major incidents, governors were called to the scene to deal with. So you knew that if it was the SEG or the healthcare, oh, I've got a story for you for that. Oh, this is a good one. So quite often prisoners, and Neil was involved in this one as well. Um, me and Sam quite often dealt with incidents together. He'd be the first and then I'd be sort of managerial and, and making the decisions. But quite often I'd be on scene of the incident <clears throat> to make sure that everything was done <clears throat> above, and, you know, above and board and to protocol, etc. So quite often, the problem with mental health prisoners is, as I've said previously, we couldn't medicate them, never. You can't, in a prison, you cannot forcibly medicate them. Once they are sectioned under the Mental Health Act, then they can be medicated, but not whilst in prison. So you've got people with really chronic, sort of self-injurious behavior, self-harm, mental health, that are pre pretty, pretty unmanageable. Um, so we had this one guy, and he'd come back from Ashworth. He'd been deemed untreatable by Ashworth. Great, send him back to us. So, so this high security hospital basically refusing to treat this guy. Um, and they sent, him, they sent him back to us. Um, and his behavior was, was just way too disruptive for the healthcare. So if you think about the healthcare, you have got people there that are genuine, you know, disruptive and mentally ill but people that are genuinely mentally ill that need caring for. You also had people with disabilities, with physical health conditions, so it was quite a mixed bag. So you couldn't really have someone on there that was displaying antisocial behavior, like a dirty protest, for example, stuff like that. So the he was disrupting the regime, consistently self-harming, like consistently. And when I talk self-harm, I'm not just meaning a little cut here and there, we are talking like bleed out self-harm. So slicing arms open, bleeding out. And I've dealt with a couple of these sort of in my service and they're, they're, they're scary, but he was a fighter as well. So we would assault staff. So not only is he, is he trying to kill himself, whether, or I don't think he was trying, I think he was doing it to, to dis massively disrupt and cause us as much, as many problems as possible. Um, so he would he would cut and then fight with staff. So it, that is just like the worst of, you know, it's just horrendous. You know, we're not allowed to know whether these people have got bloodborne diseases because of, of uh, health confidentiality. 
Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So if he had uh, HIV, for example, or hepatitis C, <sighs> you're not you're not informed at all. We're not allowed to know. I don't think I don't. I think in America they know. Yeah. No, we're we're not allowed to know. Sometimes we might have a nurse on the sly who would just say who wouldn't say exactly what. But we'd just say, Watch out. take extra care with this one, and then we'd know. So, but the, the worst thing is, I mean, as a governor, <clears throat> obviously I didn't actually physically um, fight with them or have to fight with them anymore. But you're responsible for sending staff in to fight with them. So you're responsible for the staff, you know, as well as the prisoner. This guy would, and as I said, seriously self-harm, not just Nick's. We're talking pints of blood and fight with staff. So there's there's the double risk. There's the risk that to life. So we're always taught in the prison service that risk to life trumps everything. So you have to preserve life. Um, but in order to do that, to treat him, he would have to be restrained. So it's, and you have to think of the safety of the staff. I mean, we don't know if, if he's got weapons that he can self-harm he therefore has weapons that he could slash staff potentially so we're in a real quandary so he hadn't self-harmed at this point but we'd or he had done mine in a minor way for him but we took the decision that his behavior was just too disruptive to the unit no one was getting out getting a regime people weren't being looked after basic needs weren't being cared for even though he was displaying elements of mental health we made the decision that he was going to have to go down the segregation unit which was a mountain of paperwork and and policy and protocol but we took that decision and i was on duty that day so i was duty governor but there were there was a senior governor um, over me in also in the prison that day so we took the decision that we were going to take him down the segregation unit so as i said he had self-harmed but not to the extent and we were at that point we didn't know how he was self-harming so if they have razor blades sometimes it can be in their mouths it can be hidden in other orifices and etc etc so he was taken to the segregation unit and taken into what we call a special cell so a special cell is a place, so when a prisoner's been exceptionally violent and you need to de-escalate the behaviour, you put them into basically a concrete room that's got nothing in it. It's not got a sink, it's not got a mattress, it's got nothing. And it's just got a steel door like that thick, you know, with like a tiny little hatch. And that's basically where they go to decompress, uh, but it's somewhere safe, that's not got anything that they can smash or, you know, so we restrain this guy, take him down the segregation unit, and Sam was on duty with us this day. I've got a doctor there, I've got mental health nurses there, I've got a full team, because I know that this is going to be problematic. He gets onto the segregation unit and seriously, seriously self-harms. So he's fought with staff all the way, fought, 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 gets onto the segregation unit, and we're talking arteries, arteries have gone. Mm. <clears throat> so we have blood literally everywhere. Um, and he's bleeding out. And I haven't got staff with him, but he's bleeding out in this special cell. I'm like, right, what do I do? I'm not a doctor, I don't know how long this guy's got, but he's violent staff. The risk to staff was 
significant. So when you have a prisoner who's exceptionally, exceptionally violent, who you can't handcuff, we have something called a body belt. So a body belt is you need, so the permission levels that you need to apply, because it's considered pretty much inhumane. So a body belt is a big leather strap that goes around the waist and it's got two leather handcuffs there on either side. So big leather handcuffs, big leather belt. Sounds a bit S&M, but it's not very pleasant. I have been in one because when you're in training, everyone gets to try one on and it's horrible. You can't move. The restriction is, is horrendous. Um, so staff were pushing for him to be in a body belt. I also agreed that he... I thought he was that violent, that much of a risk to staff, and we had to treat him somehow. So the only way to get him to hospital was to put him in a body belt. So in the meantime, so these decisions, conversations going on, I'm in charge of the prison, it's on my head. And he's still bleeding. And he's still bleeding. So I'm trying to make these conversations snappy. I'm trying to sort of respond. And in the meantime, I'm thinking, oh God. So I just think, right, I'm going to go consult with the doctor because this is a body belt, it's a mechanical restraint. It's, and he went, you can't put it on, he'll bleed out in seconds. And I'm like, what? He said, if you put someone into a pressured position and restrain them, their blood pressure is going to increase so significantly that it will literally push all the blood out of his system immediately. Mm. So I'm there. And I'm like, this is way above my cognitive ability. This is way above my risk assessing abilities. This is... So I thought, I need help here. And there's nothing wrong with asking for help. And if you think there's someone more senior there who might have a bit more experience, of course you're going to go to them. So <laughs> I called him down. Literally, we're, we're having, he's bleeding. This guy's bleeding out. So I called him down and said, I really need you here as soon as possible. I said, I need to bounce my ideas off you. I need to, to speak to you. I need to, you know, I'm happy to put my name. It was always who puts the name on the paperwork because whoever puts the name on the paperwork is the one to blame. So I said, I'm happy to put my name on the paperwork. I'm happy to sign everything. I just need some advice. I just need some. So this guy came down and um, I said, what do I do? And the doctor's there going, look, this is the case. You apply that, bleed out in, in seconds, not minutes. You leave him there, he's gonna bleed out, but it's gonna take a bit longer. You put staff in, he's gonna attack staff and staff are gonna get covered in blood. So you have literally got, like literally no options. So I'm like, I, I can't let him die. I can't, you know, I can't put a body belt on him. So the only thing I can think of is to let him get an ambulance there, let him pass out, and then get him on the ambulance because once you're unconscious, you can't give consent, but we can treat you. Can you inject him with something to make him pass out? No, you, you can. You can. Yeah, you, they've got something What's called it called like a cosh. No, yeah, but we call it rapid trank. So there is, but you have to have like home office approval to give him rapid trank. So there's no time for that. Absolutely no time for anything like that. So this this guy came down and I said, I need your help. I'm sort of really sort of struck. I'm, I'm thinking this is my only option. Let him pass out. The ambulance crews are here. They're ready to get in. Whilst he's passed out, we can, you know, put the restraints on. Because so, he had to have some form of restraints. And he turned to me and he said, well, it's your duty, Governor. It's your decision. And just turned around and walked off. And I'm like, oh, my God, I never ask for help. Never. 
And I'm thinking, and it was kind of like, it was almost like, he's going to die. I don't want anything to do with this. So we got to the point where he was so weak. We had an ambulance there, so we had paramedics there. So we got them in. Instead of sending him out to hospital, we got the paramedics there on standby. And we waited till he was so weak that they were able to go in, literally patch up as much as we could, put him in position where he wasn't bleeding out, restrain him, send staff, send him out to hospital. So it was fine. But I, I tell you, for about a period of about six or seven minutes, that was probably the most pressured critical time and I'm thinking I'm like trying to very rapidly run through these three options I've got some staff that are saying I'm not going near him and I and I get it if someone's covered in blood and you think they're going to attack you there's no amount of money in the world that would make me want to go in there and I'm just thinking what what do I but fortunately the staff always came through at Manchester um there were people that knew him people like Sam that Neil Samworth should have said, you know, that would, would speak to him and try and bring him around. And we managed to get him out and we got him treated. And then he, he came back and the behaviour continued and eventually went back to Ashworth Hospital, which was good because we just said, we got to the point where we just said, we can't deal with this behaviour anymore. And he, he eventually did go back to hospital after much um, charming on my behalf of the psychiatrist and, you know, and other people pulling strings, the mental health teams, the healthcare teams, you know, everyone pulling strings to say, this behavior is just unmanageable. Um, it's the closest I've come to sort of thinking that I'm gonna lose someone actually on the spot. Um, and he, you know, I, fair play to the staff for, for, for being there, you know, they, they were with me, they were supporting me. Not so much fair play to the to the guy who came in and walked away and said, I want nothing to do with it. Uh, but yeah, you know, when, when you say to people, you're talking life and death decisions and it's your name on the paperwork, you are literally talking life and death decisions. And you're thinking, you know, and, and it's not just the life of the staff, life of the prisoner, you know, and, and everything that sort of comes with that. So yeah, it was... An exhausting day, and I think that was quite early on in the day. I think I still had about another 10, 12 hours after that to do. <laughs> yeah. So were you familiar with like the stories that Sam was told and in his book about the mental health things, the ex those extreme stories? Yeah, yeah, pretty horrendous. I mean, the sound of a man throwing himself off a bed and the sound of his skull hitting the wall and hitting the floor is pretty horrific. I know that. Have you heard that yourself then? I heard it once. Oh. The staff used to have to hear it a lot. We had another guy who um, had come back from Ashworth. He was um, an illegal immigrant and again was trying to prevent being deported. And he came back and his thing, this is really bizarre, so you're gonna find this weird. He used to he had like a bit of an open wound in his left arm so his self-harming behavior had stopped at ashworth because they were allowed to cut his fingernails under restraints we weren't allowed to cut anyone's fingernails so what he did he grew like a long point on his forefinger and what he used to do is he used to go into this hole in his arm and 
rip open a vein or an artery because this one bloody finger and i i used to say can we just not go in and cut it off nope so he used to fight with staff as well next thing he'd do that and then he'd be hitting his head against the wall you'd go into the cell he'd leap off the side and try and jump on you and i think eventually we put him in a body belt and but we also put a protective helmet on them as well because quite a lot head banging was quite common with uh, a lot of them so we put a, a protective helmet on him as well um but yeah just i mean there was a guy that it's it, no common sense or anything the fingernail honestly i would have done it myself and paid the price you know but it's, it would have been classed as an assault oh wow and i'm thinking as much as i wanted to do it, i'm thinking i'm not going to lose my job just to cut guy's fingernail oh. but um you know one guy you know killed himself by drinking too much water what intentionally yeah. i mean no he was so ill he was so so ill i mean i didn't even know that was a thing i didn't even know you could do that I've heard of it at raves where people have been doing ecstasy and they've drunk too much water and died. Right, I ha- I hadn't heard of that. But yeah, he um, but he was so ill, really, really ill, and he was Polish as well. So it was we couldn't really communicate with him, and he couldn't communicate with us, despite having translators that, and translation facilities. Um, I mean, deciphering mental health with people who speak English can be hard enough when they're that delusional or thought disordered um but yeah that 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 was really sad and, and this was again daily what about prisoners burning themselves or setting fires to themselves yeah that was that was quite i mean i experienced that in the female estate and that was earlier and, on was it yeah and and in the male estate fires are the scary thing to me they're the ones that you can't control they're the ones that are going to be a high risk to life, escalate very quickly, risk to other people's lives, definite risk to staff lives. Um, but yeah, bin fires were very, very common, setting fire to their bedding, things like that. Um, again, knowing that, I mean, we had what's called inundation points. So you have a, a sort of a hole in the cell door that's got a key, so you can take it out and you can put a hose in, but you've, but as long as you get there in time and you can get the hose out and unwind it and get there. We also have we also had like smoke hoods that staff were trained in so they could go in and retrieve bodies or, or whatever. It's quite unrare for prisoners to die in a fire. I do think it sort of to my knowledge in the last five years there has been one. So it's not common that they they die, but it is common that they do it. Um like I say, bin five, metal bin, loads of paper, set fire to the bedding. Is it purely for attention? Yeah, yeah, boredom, attention, just causing general havoc, chaos, you know, it, it, pr- pr- you know, potentially cause damage to themselves, damage to staff. It's not a way I would choose to go, but yeah, it's, um, but it's, it's scary because like I say, it's the, it's the thought that it can spread. Mm. Uh, and to say we, we, we did do like evacuation drills and things like that, but to say we're, we weren't very good at evacuation <laughs> drills. As, if you can imagine, like, if you were talking someone like the healthcare, for example, you've got prisoners that can't be unlocked with other prisoners. You've got prisoners that require three or four members of staff to unlock them. Can you imagine trying to evacuate 20 prisoners 
onto an exercise yard to avoid a fire, that all want to kill each other, that have all committed heinous offences that other people don't like, that have all got self-harm or violence against staff. So yeah, <laughs> fires in the healthcare were not a good thing. No. <laughs> well, we're almost at three hours, Holly. Do you want to tell the viewers where we're going to go in part three? So we're nearly at my end of time at Manchester. So um, I went back to Liverpool. Uh, then I took a job in headquarters, and then I finished my service at Hindley Prison. So good way to go. And you have a new nemesis in a Liverpool prison. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you've missed part one, stay tuned. We're going to add it onto this. You can continue to watch it after the right after this. All of Holly's links will be in the description box below this video. Jen's links will as well. Huge thank you for staying with us on this one. It has been harrowing. The level of detail, the storytelling ability, it's just, I mean, Holly is just always on fire. She's just a naturally brilliant storyteller. <laughs> and if you've got questions for Holly, we will be putting those at the end of part three. So please put in the comments your questions for Holly and we will put them to her and, and answer them in part three and holly did join the premiere of part one that was that fun yes the live chat no it was really good to engage with people and i managed to stay to the end yes. even though listening to my own voice for three and a half hours was quite um, a challenge i was like how have people stayed with this but thank you to everyone who watched that and no i really enjoyed the live chat and i, I look forward to the next one oh brilliant. Brilliant. holly thank, thank you very thank much you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Thanks, Jen. Wow.